Good start. That could be, yeah. Chris Ryan and I have decided um, that for my friend Steve Renazizi, who just admitted that he lied about working in the uh, September 11th, uh, the Twin Towers during September 11th, that we're just going to lie all day. So this podcast is all bullshit. Everything we say, <laughs> you know, psychologically, it this this is a this is a tough one for me because I really like Steve. He's a good friend. I really like that guy. I see him in the comedy store all the time. I've I've known him for years. I really like him. And then I see this, and I'm just like, Jesus Christ. You know what what gets me? What gets me when someone does something like this is I imagine what it would be like to be them, to have told some sort of a crazy lie and got stuck telling it, where you're repeating it over and over again, and then you just got, it just becomes like it's it's locked in. It's like, how do you erase it? How do you go back and take yeah. a lie away? Especially if you transition from like a regular guy who just bullshits with his friends to a public figure. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess this guy got famous at some yeah. point, right? Yeah. So then you've got your lies that all your friends think are true. <sighs> and now you're doing interviews with the fucking Wall Street Journal or whatever. And if that comes up, what do you do? You stick to your guns or you uh, humiliate yourself, you know, in your private circle, you know? Because you got to, there's that. Uh, well, apparently he did humiliate himself in his private circle. He pulled mm. Ari and a few guys aside years ago and told them that it wasn't true. No shit. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I guess it's just been fucking with them forever. I, well, I just, you know. Good for him. He's coming out of the closet. Although he got pulled out of the closet, I, I think guess. he got pulled out by the New York yeah. Times. Oh. I think the New York Times got him. Yeah. You know, they do their research, and they found out that he didn't really work for Merrill Lynch. You know, he said he worked for Merrill Lynch for like a year and a half as an account manager. Didn't really work with Merrill Lynch. Either. Well, as you were saying before the mics went on, like, what a, what a dumbass lie. Yeah. Like, oh, Merrill Lynch account manager? Wow, let me suck your dick. Like, who gives a <laughs> shit? You, know you used mean? to work for Merrill. Like, hey, I used to be an accountant, baby. You know, <laughs> I like how I like how lies for Chris Ryan immediately translate into. Why else would you sex? lie? Why else would you lie? <laughs> Nothing else is worth it. You know. I guess to get a better job or something. Maybe yeah. that would be something. I don't want a job. <laughs> <laughs> My entire life has been about avoiding ever having a job. Other that than blowjob. Uh, writing books, even just like, God, let me just get this out of the way so I don't have to have a job. Dude, I don't ever want to write another fucking book in my life. Even that, I'm trying to get out of. That's hilarious. But you're an author. You're you're Reluctantly. an established, a successful author. And you're like, fuck, I don't want to do that. Dude, I wrote a book and suddenly was running a business. Like, I never wanted to have a business. I'm not a business guy. What is the business? Chris Ryan, Inc. <laughs> you, you know what it's like. If, like, right, you, okay. you, you're in the paper, suddenly managers are calling you and, mm. and lawyers and you've got account, you know. Right. All, you got the, the sort of parasite infrastructure that gloms onto you, like, you yeah. know, those things on the bottom of boats, you know. And it's like, no offense to any accountants who or are, parasites, are, <laughs> but you know what I mean, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. and and so, I mean, you know, Joe Rogan Enterprises is a huge thing, you know, and you must that must take a lot of time, a lot of attention, and so even in my you know micro scale, it's just a giant pain in the ass. It certainly can be. 
fortunately for me, I don't think of anything that I'm doing as like really work work. Yeah. You know, it's just stuff I enjoy doing that happens to be an occupation rather than. Right. Um, but yeah. Well, and also, I mean, what you're doing, you're at a level where you can afford to hire good people to help you. Mm -hmm. I'm not. Right. And my wife is useless. So, <laughs> so, I mean, she's a wonderful woman. Don't get me wrong. And she's very good at certain things, but, you know, producing a podcast, editing a book, right. uh, you know, this kind of stuff I need someone to do. She, I mean, I have to answer her emails, you know. She can't be bothered. When you when you hear a guy like this Renazizi story, when you hear a lie, does, that, does it freak you out? You know what? Here's the thing that freaks me out. And it freaks me out, like even like the Jared from Subway thing, or when I read something about some guy who was methed up. I forget what the uh, article was about. I think what the article was about uh, a guy who was friends with a guy who turned out to be a murderer. And it's about a guy who got methed up and, and uh, got involved in some rough sex with some prostitute and killed her and then sawed her up and left her fucking body in bags and shit. Could have been an accident. What? <laughs> Whenever I hear about anybody who's just gone completely off the rails like that, mm. I always say, okay, if I was that guy, if I was born in his shoes, if I lived his life, would I have been that fucking guy? Like, how much of what we are is determinism? You know, how much of what we are is based on the events that took place that have that are completely outside of our control about how much of it is how we were raised. I mean, we've all heard people tell like terrible stories about how their parents raised them, terrible stories about the environment they're forced into. And you always wonder, like, how much of who each one of us is is based on a bunch of shit that's completely outside of your control. And how much of these events that take place, whether it's the Jared from Subway thing or I had my friend Barry Crimmins on, who's this uh, great comedian and a, a real icon in Boston. And Bobcat Goldthwait did a film on him about his horrific childhood sexual abuse. He was raped when he was four years old by his babysitter's boyfriend. And it was this horrific, horrific story. And, you know... This is something completely outside of this guy's control, and how much of who he is now is based on that. Well, he's like in his 50s, and this is like still something he's dealing with from when he was four. You know, it's just you, what you are now is like this series of these series of events that have kind of a lot of them just laid out in front of you without you having any control over it at all. Now, here you are. And when I see a guy that does something really crazy, I mean, this is like minorly crazy. We're not talking about a horrific crime like a Bill Cosby thing or something like that. We're back to the comedian now. Yeah, the comedian. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not, not the chopped up prostitute. No, 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 no. Yeah. I mean, Steve Renazizi, my friend, you know, it's, what he did was just doesn't make any sense. Like, and you just wonder, like, what it must be like fuck to be that guy who's done that who's just like yeah. said this thing for no fucking reason that doesn't make any sense and then has to stick with it just i don't i mean that's my angle on these things instead of getting upset about i mean especially this one so but how does that relate to what anybody. you're saying do you feel like if you may if you were in the position he was in you might have done something similar i always it? worry that yeah i always whenever i see someone do anything crazy like murder or craziness or anything i always say well 
how much of who you are is because of your life experiences? A lot of them outside of your control, your genetics, your parents, the, the environment that you were raised up in, the people that you came in contact with when you were younger. Yeah. How much of that is who you are today in 2015? I think it's, God damn it, I think it's a lot. Yeah. And so I see, I see this guy, you know, my friend, and again, Steve Renazizi, what he did was just dumb. It's not evil. It's not, nobody got hurt, you know. I mean, he might have hurt someone's feelings, people that actually were survivors of 9-11. That's, uh -huh. poten that's potentially possible. But you know what I mean? He didn't rape anybody. He didn't murder anybody. It's just fucking what happened? How does that, how does the brain get so fucking tweaked? So, and of the lies he's been busted for, the I was in the Twin Towers and 9-11 is the one that everyone's focused on, right? Yeah, no one gives a fuck about lying about working for Merrill Lynch. Right. Well, although I don't understand why you would, right? right. Like you said, unless and you're also, trying to get led. And also, like, you know, I would argue that anyone who was a survivor of 9-11 who was actually there has bigger issues to yes. think about than some sure. comedian is. So... I would argue he didn't really hurt anyone except himself now that he's, you know, busted. Rationally, yeah, you're right. So who gives a shit, you know? And everybody everybody in public life is lying on some level, right? You're, you've got a persona, mm -hmm. and you have to be true to that persona even— I mean, I remember when I first sat down with this producer to, to talk about doing a TV show, and um, which ultimately never got made like most TV shows, but— um, when we were like putting together the the whole um, uh, chat, the summaries of the episodes and all this stuff, he said, "So what's your your on air? Who are you going to be on the show?" <laughs> and I said, "What do you mean? It's like I'm just going to be me." I, he said, "No, are you going to be like the funny guy? Or are you going to be the really smart prof professorial guy? You know, what's your image, your persona going to be?" I said, "I'm just going to be me." He said, "Oh, you're you're going to be authentic." With, with air quotes. <laughs> I said, what the fuck is that? No, I'm going to be authentic. He's like, no, on TV you can't be really authentic. You can, the most you can be is, quote, authentic, because you have to be the same every fucking episode. And if you come in one day and you're feeling pissed off because you just had a fight with your wife or, you know, you're, you got diarrhea or whatever, the, whatever your issue is, you can't express that. You have to be the same guy you were last week. But why is that? Consistency. Is that just, well, it's entertainment. But that's the medium, though. The medium is just yeah. so limiting in that way that you, people expect that every week. That's one of the cool things about a podcast is that they kind of don't. Like when you do tangentially speaking, you can kind of like oh, thank you. be you. Nice. Yeah. Right? I try to, but but still, I am conscious of the the. The distinction between who I really am and who people are getting the impression I am. Hmm. And I try to be, like, just the last episode I did a, in the intro, I did a little thing about, because um, people were writing to me saying, like, what's it like to go from, like, some nobody in Barcelona to TED Talks and Rogan Show and all this stuff, right? What's that like? Did you, like, feel it happening? Did you expect it? Did you, is it like being on a river and it was just flowing that way? Or were you swimming toward it? Or, you know? Right. And so I tried to address it a little bit. And what I said was, in my very minuscule experience, fame is like wine that tastes really good and can only get you drunk while it's in your mouth. 
so you swallow <laughs> <Okay>. it quickly. <laughs> I know, it's not the best thing. The, the other metaphor I thought of was like... Oh, okay, okay. So if it's in your mouth, it gets you drunk, but if you swallow it... You're no, fine. You're fine. Right. Okay. So you... Um, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Someone comes up to you and like they're like nervous and like, oh my god, it's Joe Rogan, right? And you're like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just me, right? Right? I mean, yeah. like, you know the truth. Uh -huh. You're just a guy, but they're reacting to what they think you are, which is so much more than what you actually, what anyone is. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the nature of fame. It's this bullshit thing that only has the value that people apply to it. Right, right. And they're right. applying more to it than you are because you're you, right? And you know what it's like behind the curtain. So, but you don't want to disrespect them either. Right. And you don't want to disrespect what it is that they're experiencing in that moment, even though it's complete bullshit. Right, right, right. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. No, no, what? you're making sense because it, 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 it's it's very confusing to people that don't know it, but it's, it's like a magic trick that um, if it tricks the magician, he's a fucking idiot. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you have exactly. a, a magic. Look, I pull a dove out of my hat. <laughs> you, you know there was no fucking dove, and yeah. the dove's in your sleeve, asshole. You're hiding the dove. Yeah. I see what you're doing. You know what you're doing. But if you say I have this amazing ability to make doves appear out of nowhere, and you really believe it, well, you're a moron. You know, it's right. like you have a magic trick in being on television or being, you know, on the radio or in movies or whatever it is. Whatever it is that people get attracted to you by your work, by your by you being an author, whatever it is, th that thing makes you different than another person. Instead of just like I appreciate talent, like very much so, and I can kind of be like uh, starstruck when I meet someone that I really appreciate or that I really uh, am uh, admiring of their work. But I kind of know what it is. It's like I've seen it enough times. That I'll go, hey, there's that guy that fucking sings that awesome song. Hey, I love your shit, man. Yeah. And it's like, it's a good thing, but it's not, a, I don't think of him as other than a human being. But right. I remember one of the first times I ever met a famous person, or the first times I ever met famous people, I couldn't believe I was seeing them in real life. Yeah. One of the first guys I'd ever met, I was in Harvard Square in Cambridge. I don't even remember the dude's name. But he had been in a bunch of like television dramas. That's funny. And I was like, "You're that guy from that show." And he like told me what the show. He's asking a question. He like wanted to know where the T stop was, you know, where he could uh, catch public transportation. You know. <laughs> so and he approached he, you. He, no, he just he was just yeah. He asked a question. Asked I th I don't know if I asked him if he was that guy first or if he asked me, but yeah. he didn't give a fuck. He was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I'm that guy from that show." Did you guys know where this thing is? And we you know told him where it was. And we're like, "Whoa, we just saw that guy." I still to this day don't remember who the fuck he was. <laughs> That's funny. And when I was little, my uncle used to work for uh, Howard Marks Advertising. My yeah. uncle Vinny is uh, an artist, and he uh, worked for the company that drew the album covers for Kiss. So when I was like, boy, I guess I was like eight or nine years old, maybe. I don't know how, somewhere in that age, I met uh, Ace Freely who was the lead guitarist to Kiss, and yeah. he always wore makeup, and I met him with no makeup on. And, uh, you know, he would come by, and no, like he, it was a great hustle they had. They wore makeup when they were on stage, but then off stage, no one knew who the fuck they were. Yeah, perfect. So they were huge superstars, selling out arenas, rock stars, but they were just completely incognito. Other, so this guy just walks into the office, and my uncle knew him because they were friends. And he's like, "Oh, hey, what's up? How you doing?" And I was so confused. I was like, "Is that, is that what he looks like? Like you? Because <laughs> you couldn't even see them. Like they, 
this was obviously pre-internet, but you, there was no photos of them available without their makeup. Uh, there was like maybe one photo with like a hand in front of them or something like that, where you really couldn't see clearly. But to see him in the flesh, moving around and walking and talking, I was like, what the fuck? I thought about that for years. And it's a pretty cool thing because they, I mean, I don't, I don't know anything about Kiss. Like if they were in masks from the beginning, like with the makeup from yeah, when they, they were playing the clubs and stuff. Yeah. So like were they anticipating like, wow, if we get famous – you know, we don't want to be recognized at the Whole Foods. Like, did they see that shit coming? <laughs> they, they saw Whole Foods coming. <laughs> Trader Joe's. It's all out there. <laughs> I don't uh, think so. I think there was a style of, I think they used to call it glam rock. Is that what they used to call it? Uh, with David Bowie and all that. Yeah. yeah. I, I, mean, I, I mean, I think that's what it's called. But I think yeah. it was just a hook. Yeah. I think their hook was that they were going to wear face paint, you know, and have these designs in their face. Like Paul Stanley was the star child, so he had the star over his face, and Gene Simmons was the demon. He used to spit blood and blow fire on stage. And they had, you know, Peter Chris was the cat, and then Ace Frehley was, uh, you know, he had, uh, he was like the spaceman. And they had this persona that they, they had adopted, like these characters. And no one knew what they were. And all their names were fake, too, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So, like, who they were when they were on stage and it was uh, sort of taken even further into fantasy land by this makeup and these crazy costumes that they wore. Like, they wore boots. Like, Gene Simmons' boots had teeth on the bottom of them. Like, these, <laughs> it was just all so nutty. So, so, bringing it back to your buddy, yeah. imagine, you know, your kiss and you're trying to pick up a woman in a bar and you're like, you know, I'm Gene Simmons and get right. the fuck out of here. <laughs> you probably work at Merrill fucking Lynch. <laughs> <laughs> I think they probably had so many girls coming up to them, they never went to a bar and tried to meet people. <laughs> they never went. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they were probably just trying to think, how many can I fuck in a day? And how, how many do I have to say no to? Yeah. Because it's yeah. just not going to work out. I well, you've got people time. to do that for you. Right? Probably. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They probably had, like, handlers. Handlers. Wranglers. I, I heard an interview the other day with, um, uh, I forget his name, but he's one of the main guys of Iron Maiden, and uh, which, as a band, I don't know, but I know they're huge. Right. right? And he's a jet pilot. Wow. And he flew commercial airlines for years. Wow. So he was like, you know, nobody knew it was me up there, you know, <laughs> and I'd just be, you know, flying, you know, London to New York or whatever. Like, this is your pilot. We're reaching altitude, cruising How altitude. bizarre. And then he'd go, like, play a gig in New York. Yeah. So he would fly as a commercial air pilot yeah. and then do a gig. Right. And then they bought a jet, you know, 747 or something to fly the, the band around. So now he flies the band <laughs> to gigs. How fucking strange. Didn't John Travolta fly commercially for Qantas? Uh, that rings a bell. <clears throat> yeah, I know and, he's an accomplished pilot. Yeah. I'm pretty and, sure and he did. A friend of mine went flying with Tom Cruise. He's got like a, one of those um, what, biplanes, mm -hmm. a stunt plane. Wow. And it was like loop-de-loop. -loop, and she said, man, I almost puked on him. Because she was in front, you know, the pilot's uh -huh. in back. And she was like, I was this close to, to Ralph and all over Tom Cruise. So the pilot goes in back and the passenger is in front. Right. How strange. Yeah. Those old planes, man, when you, it kind of, when you see what it is, this like wire frame 
with this like very thin coating yeah. outside of it. So the cables going out to the flaps and yeah. stuff. Yeah. And they used to have to manipulate the flaps with handles yeah. in order to make it go up and down and move Ballsy. the rudder. Oh, God. Yeah. And they fought with those things. You remember the King, old King Kong, King Kong 1? With uh, King Kong on top of the World Trade Center. Uh, no, it wasn't World Trade Center. It was <laughs> yeah. Empire State Building back King then. King Kong lied about that. Damn, fucking liar. Yeah. He's, he's climbing up the Empire State Building, and they're shooting at him with those planes, those yeah. old, rickety World War One planes. It's pre-World War Two. Yeah. Because King Kong, I believe, was the 30s, the original King it's Kong. It's early. I yeah. want to say like 33 or something like that. It was a talkie, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was a talkie. So early talkies. Yeah. We went over that yesterday, that the first... Movies were actually the 1800s for silent movies. It was late 1800s. Mm. With uh, the horses, the first one to show that the horses, all the horses' feet came off the ground at once. No. You know that story? Yeah. That I think that was the first motion picture. Uh, really? A French guy. Yeah, there was a bet. Now, it's a long time since I, I may be full of shit here, but I'm sure people are Googling it even as we speak. But there was, uh, I think it was the first motion picture was... Um, that they were trying to determine whether all of a horse's feet came off the ground at once. Mm. So he set up, I don't know if it was like a bunch of cameras in a bank that sequentially shot. Well, they have a video of it. Oh, 1889. There you go. Yeah. In the second frame, you can see all the horse's feet are off the ground. Mm. So, yeah. What was the first movie ever made? Uh, the first movie. Uh, Thomas Edison in 1889. Oh, really? Thomas Edison. Yeah, that's what this is saying. It's too bad he was such a prick. Apparently he was, right? He stole yeah. Tesla's ideas. Yeah. It's hard to tell, though. That could be like one big he said, she said thing, but obviously Tesla was a super genius, and Edison electrocuted a fucking elephant. For fun. For, well, to show to scare people, even. yeah, against DC, right? which is hilarious. Yeah, well, against ACDC, against alternating current, like DC was what was the standard, right? And ACDC alternating current <clears throat> was what Tesla had invented, so that you could plug in all sorts of different devices that right. need less power. Oh, Pretty but sure then Edison works, already right? had a business thing going, yes, yes. and didn't want, and even though Tesla's idea was better, mm, right? Yes, it was more efficient, yeah. yeah. Well, Tesla was a weird, weird, weird guy, man. But you kind of have to be to be that fucking smart and figure out that yeah. many different things. We talk well, about so that brings us back a little bit to what we were talking about before with the, you know, the persona. I've, I've got this idea that <clears throat> most of the people who rise to positions of prominence in Western society are troubled in some way. So... Like, you know, you're talking about geniuses. Like, you, you have to be – a genius is a certain kind of distortion, right? Right. Like, um, I think Einstein said that the, a smart man controls his mind, a genius is controlled by it, right? So you, huh. you're, there's an obsessive quality to it. Right. And I wonder if, you know, the extent to which our – you know, this this is this old book that I'm writing. This It seems that if – if you say the underlying structure of civilization is essentially pathological, then it makes sense that the the leaders, the people who rise to prominent positions within that society, will um, predominantly be pathological. Is that necessarily true? Like, uh, is Zuckerberg like a guy who creates something like Facebook? 
Is that uh, guy pathological? Well, you know, you would I would look at him and say, I don't know the guy. Of course, I saw the movie. That's as close as I got to him. But uh, does he seem like a balanced, uh, healthy character? Mm. To me, you know, it, it seems like a lot of a lot of uh, what's created is created by sexually frustrated adolescent men uh, mm. or boys. Right. And he would probably fit into that area. You know, right. I mean, wasn't the whole thing like a dating, uh, a way to meet chicks at Harvard? Wasn't that the the was origins it of it? I think it was a, a dating. I don't thing. really know. I don't remember. It was in the movie. Makes sense, though. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, Freud talked about this in Civilization and its discontents that, you know, civilization is built on deflected sexual energy. And if we were all just getting <laughs> laid as much as we wanted, nobody would do anything. That's that's a good point. And also, if you really concentrate on what is healthy in quotes, what's healthy is friendship and fun. Right. None of those really stack up points, you know, as yeah. far as like monetary, you know, if you, what you can what you can put in your bank account right. what you can show as far as like your real estate holdings and right. you know all the look at my fancy stuff yeah. you know like that that's really what people look to when they look for the gauge of success the gauge of success yeah. is almost always attached to money right and that's it and if you get to the point where you see through money or fame or power these 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 metrics that, mm -hmm. that are are socially accepted then you become, you know, what? The Jesus figure, the Buddha, the, you right. know, you sort of check out, tune yeah. in, turn on, drop out, right? Yeah, and then you're a loser. <laughs> you're a loser, <laughs> exactly. And you're not influencing uh, the direction of society. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. Like, it's weird about our ideas, like knowing the temporary nature of life. It's weird that our idea of success is based almost entirely on the possession of things. Yeah. And that, of course, feeds into yeah. the powers that be, right? The the consumerist change the change nature into plastic, you know, which seems to be what we're about. I have a weird theory about this that I've repeated before. So, in, in interest of saving the the attention span of the people that listen, I think that the reason why people are hooked on materialism, the reason why it's so attractive, is because ultimately what it's doing is propelling technology and innovation. And that the more we become obsessed with acquiring the newest, latest, greatest things, the more it will push innovation, these newest, latest, greatest things. And the reason for that is we're ultimately creating an artificial life. And I think that we are the technological caterpillar that becomes mm. some artificial intelligent butterfly. And that what we are doing is creating a new life form. Yeah. We just, we're so, we're so arrogant that we're, we think that we are the only life, and this is the only yeah. life that's possible. But meanwhile, what we're doing is we, we, we have been born into these inefficient, um, these biological entities, these shells that house our imagination, and that we eventually will escape them or create something that makes us obsolete, more likely the latter. Yeah, I'm... I'm grappling with these very issues right now at the end of this book right Are you? Uh, yeah have you ever read uh, kevin kelly or heard of him no he's um a very deep thinker in in um, artificial intelligence and the internet and all that mm. kind of stuff very interesting guy and and systems like how systems self-organize and like you know, like uh, th they take um, high-speed uh, film of flocks of birds, 
and they see that the individual birds are reacting to other birds, um, the flock is reacting quicker than individual birds can, can react. Mm. There's, there, there's what they call phase change, um, where you shift from a group of birds to a flock of birds or a bunch of fish to a school of fish, where, where everything starts functioning very differently, right? Mm. And, um, like, for example, did you know that uh, locusts and grasshoppers are the same animal? Yeah, it did. Yeah. Completely crazy. Right? Yeah, it's just and a matter of to the your swarm of point. them. Yeah. Well, yeah, when, when it rains... And so then there's a lot of food. They replicate, you know, they uh, reproduce really quickly. So now you've got the population density, and then the food starts to dissipate because the water is going, and now they get very tight population density, and they become locusts, which their brains change, their legs change, the coloring changes, their behavior changes, and they start swarming. So, so with less food, they swarm? Yeah, when the well, the food is restricted, mm -hmm. so they get into um, you know like a oasis or something. So they get into smaller areas because the water from the the rain. First, it rains, so you get lots of them. Then the water uh, starts to disappear, right? It evaporates over a few days or whatever, and the food uh, is less and less. So they're concentrated, and it's when they're packed tightly that they shift into locusts, and that's when they swarm and they go out, you know, and wipe out anything they can find. Wow. But then they can shift back to grasshoppers again. So I'm sort of arguing in this book that civilization is when our species shifted to locusts, a phase shift into a locust form, and we swarmed, and we've been swarming ever since, but we're about to run out of material and, you know, like the fish stocks are down, mm -hmm. the water's gone, like everything's, we're in the age of no more, you know. It's hard to argue. You know, I was watching this documentary the other day about the 1970s when they were talking about the 1970s, there was 100 million less people in America. In America. In yeah. America. And, and like the world population was. Billions less. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, that's stunning. Yeah. A hundred million. I mean, think about if a hundred million people died today in America, it would be a fucking enormous tragedy of epic proportion. But that was just the numbers a few decades ago, yeah. four decades ago, whatever it was, you know, whatever, you know, pick a number. Yeah. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. A hundred million people is a lot to gather in f inside of 50 years. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really remarkable. And yeah. And we're still talking as if growth is the natural and, you know, it's the way to, it's the only way to be, right? right. We need growth. We need growth. They're, they're worried that uh, reproduction levels are uh, below zero in Japan and Spain and some other countries. Why are we worried? That's great. I mean, short term, it's a problem because you don't have enough young people to work and pay for the old people, whatever. But long term, imagine how great the fucking earth would be if there were one billion people on earth. You know, that was something that came to McKenna in uh, a mushroom trip he he asked the mushroom how to save the human race and they said every couple reproduce only with one child mm. and the human race would be saved that's it that's yeah. all we'd have to do yeah. significantly lower population and you know with mortality and accidents and yeah. natural causes and all the other jazz take control actually this is going to be historic i am a little i I'm at the end of the book, right, where I, I, the publisher requires a prescriptive, like, what's next? You know, what do we do with all this kind of chapter, which I hate doing, but I'm doing so it. So you have to, like, have a, a solution? Takeaway. 
their okay. their phrase that they love is what's the takeaway mm, right the takeaway gotta have a takeaway <laughs> <laughs> have to have a final act mr ryan <laughs> you gotta yeah <clears throat> there's the gun's been on the mantelpiece through the whole play somebody's got to get shot you can't end yeah. the movie like no country for old men right you can't just <laughs> the guy just wanders off and like what the fuck where's the resolution um but, you know, I, I've been reading Kevin Kelly, reading other stuff, and I've come around. Uh, you and Duncan and I have always had this sort of three-way debate about the future of humanity and all that. And I, I see three scenarios, one of which is the one you just outlined, where we are a transitional life form that gives birth to techno mm -hmm. intelligence and spreads out into the universe and whatever. Um, and... Uh, the, another is sort of apocalyptic collapse and madman, not madman, Mad Max. <laughs> <laughs> madman. They'll become advertising Completely executives in different the 60s. outfits. <laughs> Thin lapels, a lot of smoking. Uh, and, uh, but the other one, which I'm actually, you know, if I were a betting man, I probably wouldn't put my money on this, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm encouraged to think about it. I read a book recently called Future Perfect. Uh, don't remember the author. Stephen Johnson is the author, another internet tech web guy, right? And he makes this, a really strong case, which I've heard you make, you've made it to me actually, that the internet is, first of all, it's very, very early days for the internet. And it opens up revolutionary possibilities like beyond anything that's happened to our species in the past. The fact that you and I right now are talking to hundreds of thousands of people with no sponsor telling us, don't say that, don't say this, mm -hmm. that I can, you know, we can talk shit about Monsanto, we can talk shit about the U.S. government, we can do whatever we want. That is really revolutionary. And yeah. the effects of that are impossible for us to really predict. And it's international, right? It doesn't respect national borders. It anyone, anywhere. It's archived. It, you know, it, it functions vertically and horizontally. That's really something. And you, one of the examples he uses in his book is Kickstarter. In two years after they launched, Kickstarter was already um, spending more supporting artists than the National Endowment for the Arts. Wow! In two years, and now it's like three times that. That's amazing, right? Who would have thought that there were so many people who were like, I'll give 20 bucks to that guy. Yeah. I'll support that. <clears throat> and, yeah. you know, this just with this technology, you're able to do stuff. I was reading about this tribe in the Amazon the other day who are um, basically have taken over defense of their land because the government's useless. And so they've got legally they're completely justified, but the loggers keep coming in and, you know, invading. and all. So they've set up like GPS units all around and, and motion-controlled cameras, and uh, they're using technology to try to defend their land and wow. document in, in incursions and stuff. And I was thinking, like, wouldn't it be cool to set up a crowd-funded thing where you could send 20 bucks to this tribe in the Amazon to help them buy a fucking motion-detected camera That'd or a drone? Why not, right? Why like, not? you know about Kiva? No. Kiva is microloans. Um, and it's just a website like Kickstarter where you go on Kiva, you, you put a hundred bucks in and, um, you, they've got all these people who have applied for loans you pick a country, El Salvador. Okay. You go through, you look at all the, their pictures and like, okay, I need 150 bucks to buy a goat cause I make goat yogurt and sell it in the village. 
Okay, you give her 25 bucks. She pays it back. Their, their repayment uh, rate is over 99% because they've got people in country who verify that everything's cool and this is a real thing and whatever. So then the money gets paid back to your account after they get their goat and they sell enough yogurt. And, they, and then you can either take your money out or you can recycle it and like go to Uganda and let's find somebody in Uganda. We can help them put a new roof on the shop, right? Wow. And it's completely you to them. And the, the company just, you know, is the, it's like Tinder or anything else. It's, it's just a way to connect. Mm-hmm. Really cool, you know, and it's your money. And if you don't want to do it anymore, you take your money and you're out. Yeah, these like sort of non-capitalistic ideas are one, one of the most beautiful things about the Internet. Like these right. sort of organically created ideas like Kickstarter, Couch, crowdfunding. Couch and, surfing. Yeah. You know, like uh, yeah, all the sharing economy. He mm-hmm. calls it, It's his term is pure progressives. And so then, like, what's going to happen if... You know, we can get the the oligarchs out of the way and make Internet direct voting. That's the ultimate future, right? Internet direct voting where it's not no longer electoral college. We don't look at things in terms of states, but we look in terms of the mass of the race or the mass of the yeah. human organism. How do, what, what benefit? That's but it. Yeah. The problem is there's been people that have been candy fed. They've been baby fed for so long. That it's almost like they're, it's like taking a person who's been in solitary confinement, locked up like a veal, and then forcing them to run an ultra marathon. It's like, God, you're just right, you're not prepared for this. You're not conditioned for it. You don't have the resources to pull off uh, an informed version of the future, you know? Yeah, but. You know, the, and again, it's really weird that I'm, the, I'm arguing the hopeful side here, but <laughs> hey, what the fuck? We said this was going to be a bullshit podcast, We're lying. right? <laughs> You're lying. We're <laughs> fucked. I don't believe any of this. Um, the one thing I, I would say about human nature, because I get asked a lot, what's human nature, you know? I think the strongest thing I can say about human nature is humans want to do what everyone else is doing. Mm. That's what we're really good at. We're not good at thinking it through, but like, oh, everyone else is killing Jews. Well, I guess I'll kill some Jews then. You know, right. like everyone else hates black people, then I hate black people. Gay marriage is cool. Okay, gay marriage is cool. Like, look how fast that changed. Yeah, I was going to bring that up when you were talking about the birds, like the birds moving in a flock in a way where they're moving in such harmony that they couldn't possibly be reacting to each other. Right. Is that what happens with mob mentality? I guess so. Yeah. And, and I and I think, you know, in humans, it's mob mentality. It's fan, mm-hmm. like like that, that hysteria. Like Beatles. The like, Beatles. Ah! That's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. Like just insanity. Yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, there is... You know, the greater than the sum of its parts, right? That yeah. that phenomenon. Like, there's no, you know, I mean, geese are a different thing, but most flocks of birds, the you know, the starlings you see mm. doing that thing at night. There's no leader, yeah, right. There's nobody saying, "Hey, let's go to the left now." Now we're gonna. There's no choreography. Right. It mimics and fish as well, right? Sure, fish in in swarms of locusts, mm. and in fact, in one of these um, books by Kevin Kelly. Um, he talks about how they were doing the the artificial uh, the guys who did the um, Batman one of the Batman movies, and they were doing the special effects. And I guess there were bats. There were flocks of bats that they needed to um, replicate on screen. And they they 
they just set up a logarithm where each bat would react to the other bats near it in certain, according to certain um, uh, variables, calcula- calculations. And then they just set it loose and it formed a flock. <laughs> so it's like it doesn't even have to be alive. It just has to have certain uh, consistent responses. Wow. Yeah. So what the fuck are we talking about? Well, we're talking about human beings moving oh, right. in a, a mob mentality. Are, right. are, do you think that we're a? I think, I think the evidence is that we're a super organism more than we're an, an individual. Yeah. Well, see what I did in in the book, and and you know, I hope this is making people want to read it when it comes out. Not like yeah, I already heard all this shit, but you know, what I did was I started by saying, your individuality is itself an illusion. Right. Because 90% of your weight, once you get the water out, is made of, no, no, not your weight. 90% of your DNA, of the DNA that constitutes your body, is not your DNA. It's the DNA of microorganisms that live on and in you, right? Right. So I got into the whole, the the whole um, uh, ecosystem, intestinal fauna, Mm -hmm. you know, and all that. Yeah, and it's so you couldn't exist without that. So each of us is a community, mm. right? Yeah. So and then you go to the the higher level, and it's just the same thing. You know, the, we each of us constitutes an organism right. as well. We're part of this thing that we can't really see because you know we're part of it. It's it's hard to. It's like fish don't think about water. You know. Right, and it's not considered because we always like to think of ourselves as individuals, but the evidence is there. We get insanely lonely when we're by ourselves. Oh yeah. I mean, we we Solitary don't. Solitary confinement. It's the worst thing you can do to someone in jail. I mean, yeah. it's really crazy. And yeah. if you think about human beings like being isolated and being lonely, and then the incredible joy that they have when they find civilization or people, like someone alone on a raft, they're not thinking about, well, I'm alive at least. Let me just think about my life. And no, they're like, fuck, I gotta find people. I have to find people. Like, even yeah. if you have all the food in the world, if you're floating around on a boat lost at sea, you're incredibly sad. Like, we have this insane, intense need for each other to, to be united, bonded with each other. And if we're not, we're, we're fucked. Yeah. We're like, we're some strange sort of superorganism. I made a, um, a video when I, I had my 2005 uh, Showtime special. And I did this video about flying over the Earth. And then if you fly into Los Angeles, and if you look at the Earth as a host for life, and, uh, you know, our bodies, you could certainly say that our bodies are a host for life because of all the organisms that we just talked about, the, the fact there's more E. coli in your body than there are people that have ever lived ever. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And all that stuff is important for life. Yeah. But when you fly into Los Angeles and you're flying over that just gigantic mass of cities, like if the Earth is an organism, well, what, is, what are people? Well, it's, it looks like a growth. Like Los Angeles looks like a growth. It looks like a growth on the superorganism, mm. like mold on a sandwich. And if you saw mold on a sandwich, you don't think of individual mm. pieces of mold with individual identities and personalities. You just see mold. Yeah. And I think the same thing could be said about human beings, that we're just so close to it, we can't see the forest for the trees. That we don't see ourselves objectively. We don't go, oh, we're, we're one thing. We're one big thing that's making technology. 
I mean, that's essentially what we are. We're one big thing that's yeah. willing to sacrifice the very fucking air, the very air that we need to stay alive. We're willing to blacken that shit up in order to produce, you know, industrial goods. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I hope that's not the way it's going, but it sort it feels that way. That's the trajectory we're on at the moment. What I'm hoping is that the the internet. I mean, I look at the gay marriage thing, and a lot of the stuff is is ugly that happens on the internet. But the idea that there is, for the first time ever, the potential for an org, a, a species mind, you yeah. know, a species level mind. What's the first thing? any conscious mind becomes aware of its own mortality mm. so maybe maybe what's happening is as the these synapses are connected for the first time ever and there's this super mind for a super organism it becomes aware of what is what it's doing and suddenly it's like fuck stop this this right. is crazy this is right. crazy we're killing ourselves if we can understand that at a species level then we can change it, right? I mean, we the the passive technologies there. We all know how to, you know, anal sex is better. You know, let's make anal sex the way to, you know, no more reproduction. Just let's all go. I, I'm not going to talk about. It. <laughs> you just went on a fucking crazy yeah. tangent. Well, yeah. but no, I know what you're. I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. You, I, I, I think <laughs> the idea non-reproductive sex. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sodomy is where it's at. Sodomy is where it's at. Be a good T-shirt. It's a lot. There's a lot of protein in cum too. You know, don't necessarily right. have to eat chickens. By the way, you were. I saw your Ronda Rousey uh, interview. <laughs> yeah, and and you you were really funny. You said uh, like, "What is it with lipstick?" You know, it's like right here. This is where the dick goes. Right. And I I was thinking, you know, that is why and how lipstick was invented. Yeah. Egyptian hookers. You know that? Well, it, it was hookers. Yeah, it was Egyptian hookers to advertise that they specialized in blowjobs. Wow. So if you saw a hooker with the red lips, it's like, she's a she's the blowjob specialist. Wow. Yeah. How do we know that? Was that written somewhere? Probably. It's hieroglyphics? You know, I, I trust that I read it in the history of sex by somebody or other. We lost so much of what Egypt was all about when they burned the Library of Alexandria. Uh, huge it's, loss. It's incredible because yeah. if, you, if you see what they were able to accomplish, so much of what archaeologists and historians do when they go back and they look at what Egypt what they were accomplished it's like trying to figure out why and how the fuck all this stuff was done yeah. I mean for all they have is what's left on the walls it's so crazy all they have literally they have the Rosetta Stone and they have the hieroglyphs and they have the the architecture and then they have to try to like back engineer and decipher to this day there's like a dozen different theories about how they built the, the pyramids. They just yeah. really just guesswork. It's not aliens? I thought it was aliens. I don't think that's true. I don't either. I think it's much more likely the advanced civilization uh, rise and decline is much more likely. And as um, as we're learning more about geologic uh, or, 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 um, uh, catastrophes, as we're learning more about uh, asteroidal impacts and things along those lines, it's way more likely that what you're looking at when you're looking at a lot of the ancient structures that exist that we can't totally explain was that something happened, that like civilization had reached a very high level and then probably were hit by giant rocks from space and very few people survived, but the people that did survive sort of refigured out all the things over a course of a few thousand years, just like we have. I mean... You go back a thousand years ago, 
Okay, let's just go a thousand years ago. Go back to 1015. People were apes. I mean, you're talking about like Genghis <laughs> Khan. They're riding horses. No one's got a car. They're shooting arrows at each other. No one's got guns. I mean, this, you're talking about craziness. You're talking about a crazy part of the world. They have catapults and shit. That was what the world was just a thousand years ago. So in a thousand years, we've gone from Genghis Khan to Elon Musk making Teslas. <laughs> That's great. Genghis Khan to Elon Musk. A thousand years. That I works. mean, essentially yeah. a thousand years. So imagine what we're talking about when the, like, um, I've had Randall Carlson on my podcast, who is a fascinating guy who is absolutely obsessed with asteroidal impacts, and he studied yeah. them his entire life. And as time has gone on, more and more of his work has been vindicated, yeah. especially by core samples. He, he believes that there is enough proof that the stone that the uh, ice age ended because of asteroidal impacts mm -hmm. and he had thought this way before they had figured out this stuff called i think it's called tritonite they found evidence of uh, what they call nuclear glass all throughout europe and asia and it all is around 12,000 years ago it's all around the same time the ice age ended and he thinks it was the catalyst for the end of the ice age and probably wiped out a gigantic chunk of humanity that there was just massive asteroidal impacts yeah. all over the planet and that yeah. it just fucking killed almost everybody or a huge percentage and everybody who's left sort of had to refigure out how to make buildings refigure out how to engineer society and then they were left with the skeletons the architectural skeletons of the past you know they would look at stonehenge or look at you know uh, Gobekli Tepe or any of these giant ancient structures and go, okay, what the fuck was, what's this all about? Who did this? How'd they do this? And they would try to mimic it or create their own. And that what you're looking at when you look at many of these ancient structures is just whatever would be left when a giant chunk of civilization is wiped out and people have to start all over again. Yeah. You ever read a book called The World Without Us? I've heard of it. I didn't a, read it. It's a good book. It's it, it's basically taking that same thought pattern and applying it to now. So what would happen if people all disappeared right now? And so he he talked to engineers in New York, for example. Like, so what would happen? Like right now, nobody there are no people. What would happen? Like, well, the pumps would stop, mm. and there are all these pumps that keep water out of this the substructure of Manhattan, right? So then that fills up with water. Okay, then how long does it take for the the um, uh, anchors and the skyscrapers to rot, rust away and, you know, corrode. So the skyscrapers start falling. And so mm. he figures all that out. Like, what animals would go feral and survive versus dogs are fucked. They're, all dogs would be eaten, like, immediately. Cats would survive, though. Really? Oh, yeah. What about feral dogs? Like, they have, there's populations of feral dogs that exist even in America today. Like yeah. They, they killed some old couple. In, I guess they'd be eaten by coyotes. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Better predators. Yeah, right. Yeah, more, uh, pros. more adapted. Yeah, pros. <laughs> the amateurs don't last. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I met a guy in Colorado that is a professional mountain lion hunter. And uh, they get hired uh, oftentimes, like whether or not you knew it, California employs professional mountain lion killers wow. because they don't have a hunting season on mountain lions in Colorado, or in uh, California, rather. In Colorado, they do. And so they, 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 the wildlife organization, they measure the population, they calculate it, and they decide how many would be viable to take to keep the community of them healthy, but 
to protect the elk population and the deer population. And so then they adjust accordingly and they mm-hmm. release tags and tags are what the hunters use to go out and legally kill these animals. Well, California doesn't have that. So in California, they, they have, I think he said three different guys that kill a, an indeterminate amount of mountain lions, any trouble mountain lions they have all throughout California. They just travel around and kill these fucking things because if you don't, then they overpopulate, and then they become a, a problem with dogs and people and joggers and shit like that. But there's groups in California in particular, like extreme wildlife advocates, that want that. They want no more hunting. What they want to do is reintroduce wolves and grizzly bears to California so that those animals control all the game populations to a f- sufficient level. Which is really, like, it's not very well thought out because then no one controls their population except assassins. They have to hire assassins to go out and kill the grizzly bears that start encroaching into civilization and the wolves that start moving in on people's livestock. They have to hire people to kill them. But it's it's this fascinating idea of uh, animal management that these these people are, like, juggling back and forth with between the people that are pro-hunting and then the people that are... Um, the conservationists or the wildlife advocates. It's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, you, you remind me of something I just read recently about the cobra effect, it's called. It refers to the um, <clears throat> unintended consequences of trying to control wild animals. Mm. And it started uh, when the British were in India. In New Delhi, uh, the local authorities decided to deal with the fact that there were all these cobras living in the sewers and you know causing a big problem. So they um, instituted a price for each dead cobra that you would bring in. They'd pay you a bounty, right? So that worked really well. They were getting rid of a lot of cobras. Then people started breeding them. <laughs> to make money. <laughs> exactly. Yes, of course. So suddenly there are all these cobras <laughs> coming in, and they realize they're being played. So then they're like, fuck that, and they stop paying the bounty. So now the breeders have thousands of cobras, you know, and so they just let them loose. Oh, Jesus So Christ. you end up with a much bigger problem than you thought you were solving. Well, Australia's done that, too. Australia had a problem with uh, – they. Australia didn't really have large mammals. Mm. Uh, or rather, um, New Zealand didn't really have large mammals. But Australia introduced certain predators to try to deal with introduced animals, like rabbits. Right. Like they introduced rabbits to Australia, but they didn't have natural predators. So they brought over foxes. And then the foxes ate a shitload of rabbits and then got out of control and started eating ground-nesting birds right. and decimating the population of ground-nesting. I mean, you can't yeah. tell... You can't engineer a fox to only eat rabbits. Right. But they never did get a hold of the rabbit population. The ra- they put up fences to try to stop the rabbits from moving into new areas, but they weren't quick enough, and the rabbits got through the fences. Yeah. As they were building the fences, the rabbits fucked their way through to the other side of the fences <laughs> and just fucked and made more and more rabbits. So then they wanted to introduce the foxes over there. And then they wanted to bring in predators to kill off the foxes. Yeah. Like, it's a clusterfuck of human beings trying to somehow or another manage nature. And every time it gets away. Yeah, the- through predators, and pre- especially things like like a rabbit that can just breed like crazy yeah in an environment where they you know they, they really didn't have a natural enemy there's a great documentary called cane toads about the same thing in australia where they there is some grub that was eating they're destroying sugar cane and in hawaii they're able to grow sugar and the the grub is under control because they have these big toads that eat the grub so they brought the cane toads to australia and introduced them and these toads are like 
that big. They're they're I mean they're like the size of a sixteen ounce steak. You know they're massive. <laughs> that's <And so> crazy. <laughs> what a fucking that's a frog. And they're everywhere. Uh, toad they're, or... and, and they've just like gone crazy. And the movie is really funny because it's like these people and their encounters with these cane toads and they're Australian, so they're just naturally funny. Yeah? Can I, you eat them? No, no, but they do have bufatinin. If you lick them, you can get really high. Oh, um, but if well, your dog you bites one, it, you'll Dead. kill your dog. And wow, yeah, they're so yeah, yeah. It's it. I don't know, man. It it makes you think. Like, you know, the whole superorganism idea. There's one of those. Oh, there you go. Look oh at that thing. God. It's bigger than a steak. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ! <laughs> that is so big. <laughs> it's so big. It does. It looks like a like a a, a large bass. And the movie is so funny. It opens. There's a scene. It's like early morning, and the 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 fog is sort of it's a foggy hillside, and there's a road, and and you see this van coming down the road, and it's sort of swerving, it really is swerving around, and gradually you realize that he's running over as many cane toads as he can, and they're all over the road. And he's like, he's hitting these cane toads, and he talks about how if you hit it just right, where like where it's facing the van. And you seal its mouth, it pops, and there's this big explosion. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Yeah, yeah. They have so many of them that they just run over them in the road? They're everywhere, man. And they and it's the same thing as you were talking about. They don't eat the grubs. They eat everything else. They eat mice. They eat rats. They eat all sorts of shit. And they have no natural predators. And they're right. poisonous. And they're poisonous. Fuck. Yeah. So it's out of control. <laughs> What's the proposal to try to manage that? I don't know what they're doing now. I saw this movie like 20 years ago at the Margaret Mead Film Festival in New York, and I've lost track of the cane toad issue since then, I'm sure. Do you know what happens with rabbits? Every seven years, rabbits have a die-off. Oh, really? Yeah, rabbits, apparently, all like farmers and ranchers would tell you, they go in these great cycles, these seven-year cycles. And right now, the population in a lot of areas is very high. Where I was in Colorado, the, the, this is where the guy was explaining You were just me. there like two days ago yeah, or something. Yeah. yeah. And the guy who I was with, um, he, he explained it to me, but I had heard it from a, f a few people before, that um, their populations get extremely high and then a disease comes along and wipes them out. And it's clockwork. It happens every seven years. Mm. And then you find very few rabbits. And then seven years later, it'll be a swarm again. It just takes a few years for them to rebuild back up. Uh. And then they're back, and then the same thing happens again. A new disease kicks along, maybe the same disease, I don't know. But the cycle of die-offs, of uh, great population growth and die-offs. And this guy was arguing that I was hanging out with in Colorado. He was saying, you know, it's quite likely that what we're looking at is a natural cycle and that it could be applied to the human race as well. Yeah, there's a, a beautiful book, which I've recommended many times, called A Short History of Progress by Ronald Wright, a Canadian scientist. And it's it he looks at every civilization that's existed, uh, you know, the Mayans, the Sumerians, uh, the Romans, the, the uh, Easter Island, all these different civilizations. And he shows that they all follow the same life cycle. Mm. It's exactly what you're saying, that there's an organic rise, and then there are certain conditions that happen that just naturally. One follows the next, and then the decline. And, you know, you see it happen again and again and again. Yeah, it's like the, the, the tide. You know, it's in and it's out. Right. It seems to be like a cycle that exists just in almost everything in nature, that there's 
there's some sort of a balancing factor that occurs with any system where you get an accumulation of one particular species or one particular thing, and then it dies off, and then it comes back. And yeah. I mean, it could be argued that that's what the asteroidal impact is, that it's some sort of an right. inoculation from space. Well, and also life apparently came from asteroids, yes, right? Yeah, so, panspermia. Yeah, exactly. That's the theory that even yeah. the building blocks of life, like simple life, like the amino acids, right. that all those things came by stars. And then when you find out that a human being really essentially is made out of star dust, in order to have carbon-based life forms, you have to have a star explode. Are you going to start singing hippie no, songs No, it's too here? crazy, man. I we can't do it. We are stardust. What is that yeah, song? Um, it's uh, fucking shit. Joni Mitchell. Yeah, there's a bunch of them. Yeah. Um, by the way, while we're talking about we the cycles year of life, carbon, yeah. and we've got to get, get back away, to the garden. Back to the garden. Yeah. Crosby, Stills, yes, and Nash, yes, Carpet. yes. Yeah. What was the name of that song? Uh, Woodstock. We are, yeah, Woodstock. By yeah. the time we got to Woodstock, yeah. we are stardust. We are golden. We are billion-year-old carbon, and yeah. we got to get our way back to the garden. That's yeah. a beautiful song. It was. They were hippies. I love their High song. On acid, dirty feet. Love the one you're with. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Uh, you like that? It's <laughs> <laughs> the theme song to Sex at Dawn. Yeah, it should like you should get a CD with the book or something. It's funny. I've met quite a few girls who've read your book, and uh, when they do read your book, there's one of two reactions one reaction is fuck that guy and the <laughs> the the other reaction is it's time to be a hoe <laughs> it's time to just go out and get your freak on i was talking to this comic like a couple weeks ago and she was saying have you ever read this book uh it's called sex at dawn i go yeah i go the author's a good friend of mine and she goes fucking so right it's so right and i'm you know, like oh there's a freak Here we go <laughs> she's a freak like finally somebody gave her a freak license exactly <laughs> somebody came along with a phd next to his name and said it's okay it's to okay. be a freak <laughs> do what you do it's all right oh man i've gotten so many beautiful emails from women um you know i've gotten some angry ones too but some really beautiful <laughs> ones from women who say you know, like, and even some of the most moving ones are the ones where they say, like, I get my mom now. Oh. You know, that's what really touches me. You know, like, I get it. All right. She wasn't bad. Yeah. She just liked to fuck, you yeah. know? And not funny. And in those days, that was a big problem, you know? It's what a weird thing that we, we have such a conflicted relationship with. On one hand, we sell everything with sex. We use it to sell yeah. cars and fucking houses and everything. It's so much so that a normal look for a woman, normal in a business environment, is exposed legs. Just think about what kind of a business environment would it be if men walked around with thongs? <laughs> It wouldn't exist. I mean, it'd be, what the fuck are you doing? If men had like little short skirts that they wore yeah, to work where your yeah. cock was just, you could just lift up the shirt, the skirt, and your cock would be right there. Yeah. That, that's not acceptable. But we, we, women are so desirable and sex is so desirable that we have accepted this idea that a woman's attire could be like the easiest possible thing to fuck in. Like literally panties that you just pull to the side and a skirt you just lift up. Easy access. And it's on Fox And high news. heels, which oh, flips yeah. your you know Ass rear up. entry, you know. Yeah. And a bra. Her. What's a bra? You know? I mean Centuates a bra is about like here it is, yeah. it's a tit shelf. Yeah. You know? A tit shelf. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Yeah. Just letting everybody know it's right yeah. here. Come and get and it. And yet on the other side, you know, there 
you know, and, and none of this is to say that women uh, should buy into this if they don't want to or that, you know, uh, objectifying. I mean, objectifying is a is a complicated thing. It is. I think we all objectify constantly. Right. Um, but, you know, like this guy, there was a big controversy a week or so ago. Some guy, um, a woman sent a lawyer in England sent uh, tried to contact a, a senior lawyer in, in this firm through LinkedIn. Uh, to get a job, and he wrote back and said, "Well, you don't, we don't have a job right now, but I'll tell you, your photo is stunning, and yeah, I'm sure you'll have lots of success." And uh, so then she calls him out for sexual exploitation because he said her photo was stunning. That was it. That's just a compliment. Yeah. Is that all he said? He uh, didn't like yeah, make any sexual said, advances. Not, not like let's have dinner. Or nothing. Huh. Just like your photo is stunning. So it became this big deal, and. Uh, and the guy, like, you know, half the people are saying the guy's a creep, you know. And I'll tell you, creep shaming is an interesting thing. It you, is. You know, yeah. like if you're over 50, you should never. You shouldn't uh, be sexual. You shouldn't be sexual. So, yeah. yeah. What do you like, a 30-year-old girl, you piece of shit? Right. You're a pedophile. Oh, you creep. <laughs> She's 22. Yeah. Why would you be attracted to her? <laughs> She's a baby. You Woody Allen. You disgust loving. me. <laughs> You disgust me with your sexual desires and hey. your fucking Cialis-induced hard-on. <laughs> Fuck you. Speaking of, uh, speaking of uh, standing up for people, I really appreciated the article you uh, wrote recently. It was Men's men's Life or I don't know. It's uh, about how... Maxim. Maxim. That yeah. was really nicely done, man. Uh, thanks, man. Thank Seriously. You. As thanks. a guy who's not in great shape, I appreciated that. <laughs> yeah, the, the concept... Well, they wanted me to write something about the human body. Uh, about getting in shape or whatever. And it, it just occurred to me to make the comparison to a human body and sandcastles. Yeah. Your body's like a sandcastle. That The reason why sandcastles are kind of cool is because you know that they're not going to last. Yeah. yeah, it was really well done. And it, Thanks, I mean, it, it called, you know, the, the mandala, the idea of building something beautiful that's mm -hmm. going to be washed away as soon yeah. as you get done with it. I often think about life that way, not physically so much, but... Um, like, I feel I, I'm in my mid-50s now, and I feel like I'm starting to figure it out. Yeah, that is part of the problem, right? By the time you realize the hustle, the fucking game is almost done. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm learning how to dance, and they're turning the lights on. That's like, sort of probably on. also what contributed to all these fucked up civilizations was that people only lived to be like 30. You know, if you were really lucky. So yeah. you were just constantly on momentum, like running downhill where you couldn't stop. Like, ah! Yeah. And then the barbarian hordes cut your head off. And then hopefully along the way you fucked and left behind some of your genes. And then they fucked. And, and people just died off in these giant chunks <laughs> when rats came into your cities that carried fleas that had yeah, the plague. The and plague. just, Wah! And then finally we developed the ability to fight off diseases, inoculate ourselves from certain viruses, uh, build up walls to keep out the barbarians, build up stockpiles of food so that we didn't have to constantly hunt and gather. And then everybody went, hmm, I think if you make something circular, we can roll it. I'm going to call it a wheel. Right. And then they started pushing things along. And then they start. I mean, you could argue that that agriculture and that civilization was the downfall. But you could ar also argue it was the beginning of real thought. It was the beginning of relaxed thought. Because mm. you had the opportunity to innovate. Well, and you had the surplus of food that you could have people who thought for a living. Yeah. 
And then the machine slowly started to plot our demise. Yeah. They started with the, listen, listen, I could be a wheel, man. I can carry you yeah. around. Yeah. You don't have to put anything I'll on make your life back. easier for you. Hey, dude, you know, if you just fucking uh, make a silo, you could put all your grain in the silo. Yeah, you know, you exactly. Fucking, you have stockpiles And next winter. thing you know, you got Steve Jobs. Oh, yeah. Let me, I mean, I remember in the, <laughs> it must have been the 80s when my boss gave me a beeper. And oh. I was like, oh, cool, I got a beeper now. Yeah. And within two days, it's like, you might as well put a fucking leash around my neck, yeah. you know? It's like, this isn't helping me. This is for you, you fuck. How about people that are required to answer emails over the weekends? Yeah. There's a lot of jobs that you're required to answer emails at night, over the weekend. You have to constantly be aware. You have to have your phone. There's, there's certain companies that require people that are employees to have their phone where the notifications are turned on so that an emails come in th for the company. You have to instantly answer them. Even when you're not at work. You're not at work. You're working. You, you, there's yeah. jobs, especially yeah. when it comes to Silicon Valley and these really very competitive tech industries. There's a lot of like debate as to when you should not have to answer an email. Like when is it okay? Like if your boss sends you an email at seven o'clock at night and you don't respond till six o'clock in the morning when you wake up or whatever it is, you could get in trouble. And they're fucking drug testing you. <sighs> that drives me nuts. You know, you smoke weed fucking last weekend. Yeah. And you come to work and you, you're like, are you fucking kidding me? This is slavery. That one's nuts. That well, is slavery. We're moving back to Spain. And, you know, are you? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was always a, a temporary visit. This was a, a slow, nomadic trip through North America. Portland and then Spain. Well, it was, I mean, first it was Vancouver, right? uh, Canada. And uh, then we were in Nicaragua for the winter. Then we went back to Vancouver. Then we came to L.A. for the winter. This is when, you know, you and I and Duncan started doing the shrimp parade and all that. I was living in Topanga. But it's always like a slow move. And then we went to Portland for a year and a half. And now we're going to go back to Barcelona. And what made you decide? Uh, to go back? Yeah. Well, we were always planning to go back. I mean, we, we sort of flirted with maybe staying for a while. Um, but my wife's a doctor, and for her to get a license in the U.S. would mean, like, going back to medical school, essentially, which she's not mm -hmm. going to do, right? Um, and she really likes uh, working. She hasn't worked in four years while we've been traveling. So, you know, that's an issue, like, if she's going to continue practicing. Um, but also just we really like Spain. You know, I've lived in Spain most of my life. Um, I've lived in Barcelona longer than I've lived anywhere else. Really? And what oh, yeah. is it about Barcelona that's more appealing than America? You know, when I first got to Spain, I felt I I'd traveled a lot and I was actually on my way somewhere else, but I got robbed and, you know, I ended up hanging out. And the way Spanish people see life uh, is much closer to the way I see life. And so even though I was raised in America, I never felt like this country never really made sense to me. How uh, so? Well, like what we we're just talking about, like work. Materialism. Materialism, you know, it's all about money. <clears throat> Spanish people, you know, the expression is we work to live, we don't live to work, right? Mm. Um, you know, there are no, like Spanish cars, there's no cup holder. If you want, do you want to get a drink? Pull over in a cafe and get a drink. There are no to-go cups. You want a coffee? Go to a cafe. They, really? Yeah. There's, it's like someone should tell them about cups <laughs> with lids on them. What the fuck is wrong with those apes? <laughs> Crazy, uncivilized <laughs> heathens. Fucking cave people. Um, sex cups. You know, even though Spain is you know officially a Catholic country, they're so much more chilled out about sex. About 
sex outside of marriage, like, eh, whatever, just don't tell me about it. That's the sort of normal way to deal with it. Um, women, no, you, you look, I've lived in Spain 23 years or something, right? I get accustomed when I see a beautiful woman, I look at her. And she knows I'm looking at her, and she appreciates it, and she smiles, and I smile, and everybody's happy. Come to America, look at a woman like that, you're a fucking rapist. Right. You know? You're eye-raping me. Have you heard that? <laughs> microaggressions. <laughs> I mean, fuck your microaggressions. <laughs> I don't want to hear, if you're not a fucking dwarf, I don't want to hear about microaggressions. <laughs> Give me a break. So, I mean, this country is just nuts, man. And like... And I feel bad because they're, they're, I love people here. I've got great friends here. There are a lot of things I love about it. it like, the, you know, work-wise, it's the best place to be. But um, life-wise, fuck, I love Spain. You go out to lunch with a friend, it's probably going to go till 5 or 6 o'clock. Yeah, everybody just hangs out. It's yeah, more yeah. of a hangout. Thing. Yeah. yeah. No, like restaurants. Right. I, I'm sitting in a restaurant. And uh, we're talking. The waiter, first of all, the waiter's going to come four times and ask, you know, how is everything? Oh, how are you? Oh, how's your day going? Fuck you. Get away. I'm try <laughs> trying to talk to my friend here, right? Then, then they'll come and say, are you still working on that? This isn't work. This is fucking lunch. Am right. I working on that? Get out of here. Drive me crazy. Tips. <laughs> 20%. I go to Portland, I fucking, you know, buy a croissant and a cup of coffee. There's a big tip jar or I run my credit card. 10%, 15%? Well, you just handed me a fucking bag and a cup. I'm supposed to give you 15% extra? Well, that's because your boss is too fucking cheap to pay you a decent wage. That is true. That is exactly what it is. Yeah. I, I like the tip thing because I like being generous. I like the option to make someone happy by giving them a nice tip. Right. But it is kind of fucked that, like, waiters and waitresses don't even make minimum wage. Right. That's, I don't know if that's true anymore. Is that still true? Yeah, yeah. it's true. That's yeah. crazy to me. That that seems rude. It seems evil. It seems illegal. Yeah. It's humiliating. Yeah. Too, because they have to, like, smile and give you all this fake cheerfulness. There was an article that was uh, written recently about that, about the emotional toll of uh, w requiring people to be artificially happy mm. and that it's not productive. And that, yeah. like, the artificially happy people that answer phones and ask questions and, and how are you today, sir? And mm. how's everything? Like, requiring people to do that that work for you, not only is it not productive, it, it, it wears them out, and it makes them less productive at other things that you probably need them to because there's, like, a, there's a, a mental, there's an energy that you need to do that that you could be doing and directing towards something that's actually productive. Yeah. Instead of, like, fa it's one thing. You don't want to be rude, but just being efficient is enough. You don't have to have this, like, fake sort of smiley bullshit, but... That fake smiley bullshit, people require it, like especially people who are customers. The customer's always right, like that kind of nonsense, like yeah. this relationship where the customer has to be like massaged and catered to. Instead of just appreciated as a fellow human being, yeah. there's like an established relationship between the customer and the employee. Your employee is rude. Sir, I'm sorry. Is there any way we can make it up to you? <laughs> I don't know. I might be taking my business elsewhere. <laughs> Whereas, well, yeah. you know, I mean, if that was about yeah. friends, 
friendship. You'd be like, well, we'll, we'll go fuck off. Make a new friend, dickhead. You know? well, and in Spain, that's the reaction you'll get. You oh, know? That's, well, that's nice. You go into a shop. But see, in Spain, I bitch all the time, too, right? So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But, um, like what Spain, do you bitch about in Spain? Well, the, Where's you know, the fucking waiter? The people are rude. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, exactly. That is true. The, the one the thing I do find in Europe, saying, yeah. the service is not as good. No. It's just not. No, because they, they don't get paid tips. And they don't give a fuck. But you they know? should probably give a fuck. Like there should be a there's a middle ground there somewhere. Yeah. I think that is the middle ground, right? I think like in Spain you go into a shop to buy whatever and the woman's on the phone with her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. She's gonna finish her conversation before she comes to help you. Right? Yeah. But I mean, for example, I went to Spain a few months ago to renew my residency paperwork and all that. And it was a typically Spanish experience where you know, this kind of thing in America, you would, you know, go online and fill out this thing and, you know, call the IRS and be on hold. And then you would get some grumpy asshole in Philadelphia. And but it would all get done pretty quickly. In Spain, you go to this office and they're like, hey, how are you? No, they're really friendly and nice. And, oh, no, it's not this office. You have to go to this other office. Oh, sorry. OK. You go to the other office. They're really nice, but that's not the right office either. They misinformed you. And But nobody's got any like mala leche, as they say in Spanish, which is like bad milk, literally, which like bad intentions. So it takes three days and it's kind of a pain in the ass. But it isn't a pain in the ass because you're having fun all the time. <laughs> Everyone's nice. Right. The right. women are beautiful. Right. The, the cops are nice in Spain. They're nice guys. Huh. You can go up to a cop in Spain and be like, hey, man, you know, can I park here? And he's like, eh. I remember literally I was trying to park my motorcycle in the Ramblas, and, and it's, it's no parking, but there are motorcycles everywhere. And there's this cop standing right there. So I go over and I'm like, I'm a foreigner, right? I, can I park my bike here or not? And he says, Legally, no, but nobody will say anything. Like, can you imagine an American cop Never. saying that? Maybe in the 60s. <laughs> when, when would that have ever been yeah. said in this country? It'd have to be a long time ago. And see, the, the legal system is, in Spain, it's a problem if you're bothering someone, not if you're breaking a law. If you're breaking a law and nobody says anything, the cops don't give a shit. So in America, it's the law. It's, did you break the law? Are you growing weed on your terrace? We're flying helicopters with infrared detectors to catch you. Not, did your neighbors complain or did you shoot somebody, right? In Spain, like, I grew weed on my terrace for 20 years. Nobody said a fucking word. Nobody cared. Is weed legal in Spain? Like a lot of things in Spain, it's kind of not, kind of is. Tolerated? And this is a really important uh, cognitive difference between Spain and the U.S. is tolerance for ambiguity. Like, like in Spain, I'll tune in like, oh, there's a you know Barça Madrid soccer game, really big deal, right? Starts at eight o'clock. I'll turn on the TV at eight o'clock, and there's still some fucking sitcom on. What's going on? Well, they're running late. You know, <laughs> the game will start in ten minutes, or you know, it's just. Can you park here? Well, eh, you know, there's a lot of ambiguity and no one really cares if it's not causing a problem, whatever, whatever, you know. So weed for a long time, weed was illegal officially, but the cops didn't care. Um, So like if you're smoking a joint on a playground and a cop walks by, 
he's probably going to say, dude, what the fuck? Go, go somewhere else. Get away from this playground. The kid's here. That's what would happen. That's it. That's it. If you give him shit, then maybe right. it'll escalate. But Do they have quotas? No. None of, no quotas. No property seizures. There's none of that stuff. That's so, no, that's no minimum so mandatory sentencing. The you property know? seizures, if people don't know about it, they're, they, I mean, I, they've lessened them considerably. But those things are horrific. And what they've done to people is in, they've, they've dragged people into the legal system oftentimes when they're completely innocent. Yeah. Property seizures are not necessarily, in many states, even a result of them catching you with something illegal. It's catching them with too much cash. Like there's a lot of people that have gotten yeah. caught. <clears throat> Some states, I think it was North Carolina or South Carolina, some states were really bad with it. They would catch people that would be, say, like, say if you were going to buy a car. Like, you call the guy on the phone, how much do you want for the car? Ten grand. Okay, I got it. So you got your ten grand, your cash, you're driving over to this guy's house to buy the car, and you have this ten grand, you get pulled over. The cop goes, what are you doing ten grand? I'm going to buy a car. Well, pfft, we don't believe you. We're going to take that ten grand. And so they would take that ten grand. And in one case, this police department had bought a margarita machine <laughs> with the ten grand that they stole from people that they thought were buying drugs. So or they claimed to think were buying claimed drugs. Claimed to think. But yeah. just stop and think about that. They took the <laughs> margarita money machine. to yeah. buy a drug machine, yeah. which is what a margarita machine is. Yeah. I mean, a margarita mixer. Like, what the fuck, man? Like, that kind of corruption, that kind of sneakiness where you write it down and you make it legal, in yeah. quotes. Well, it's on the books. Search, you know, asset, asset forfeiture for people that are you know, suspected for selling drugs. If you have more than X amount of dollars on you, we can pull you over for that. And they've just used that over and over again, that one law, to rip off law-abiding citizens and then drag them through the legal system for years at their own expense. So even if they get their money back, the amount of time it's cost them, and, you know, obviously that time, a lot of it is you're going to lose work because of that time. Right. And then hiring lawyers, legal fees. And if you lose... They just, they robbed you of time and the money. If you can't right. prove where that money came from, like maybe you're just really shitty with your taxes. You don't pay taxes, you work for cash, and you've been just like working odd jobs for yeah. cash, you, you saved up a bunch of money. You can't, you can't prove that that money came from illegal means. You're fucked. Well, like everything else in this country, it's set up to fuck the person who can't afford to defend themselves. And it's set up even a creepier way that's anti the way this country's supposed to be set up, where you're guilty until proven innocent. Right. You have to prove yourself innocent right. just by having currency on you. I mean, and it's less than someone makes in a year. Yeah. It's like the, the idea that you had savings. Get the fuck out of here. You don't save anything, dummy. And Give some, me that. And some kid who's selling weed and uh, living in his parents' basement, if they bust him, they take the parents' house. Mm -hmm. Parents had nothing to do with it. They'll take your car. They pull you over and you got a joint in your car. They sell your car. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of that going on over the past few decades. Ever since that Just Say No shit when we saw on television with Nancy Reagan... That, that began the fucking hysteria of this stuff. And then yeah. asset forfeiture is, is just legalized stealing. And it's, uh, you know, a fucking billion-dollar industry in this country. Yeah. Legalized stealing, and then you got legalized, um, you know, uh, bribery in the political system. Right? Okay, you sure, know, yeah. That's what lobbyists are. Yeah, super PACs. I mean, the whole, the whole, I mean, this country is collapsing, right? I, you can see it. If you start reading these books we're talking about, you can see the phase that we're in. We're in a phase now where there are all these different industries that are set up to extract the commonwealth 
like literally the wealth of the community is being pulled. You know, war, the wars in the Middle East. What was that serving? The only people who benefited from any of that were, you know, Bechtel and Raytheon and Halliburton. Yeah, these guys who do this for a living. And Eisenhower himself said, you know, the military industrial complex, when you get people who make a living with bombs and they need to be making bombs, well, they're going to blow those bombs up. They're going to find a reason to use those bombs. Of course. That was one of the creepiest speeches ever. And the most fascinating thing about it is that it was captured. I mean, it was it was broadcast on television. But if you didn't listen to it that time, it was gone. He said it and then it was gone. And it was years and years and years later before people started actually watching that, like in the fog of war. Wasn't it in the fog of war? Was it in that? Is that the the McNamara movie? Yes. Yeah. That's it a good might movie. not have been in that, but but regardless, it's it's definitely available on YouTube. Yeah. I mean, I've watched it a dozen times. I saw times. it in the Corporation. Have you seen that, that film? Yes, I did. Yeah, that's that a great documentary. Very good documentary. That's yeah. a creepy documentary when you realize that you know, when they compare corporations to psychopaths and the yeah. idea of the infinite growth paradigm. There it is. They have to yeah. constantly make new. Like if you make a billion dollars a year you go wow you're successful what do you make next year well i'm just gonna make a billion again what are you a fucking loser yeah, uh, you have to make a billion one growth, or a billion two growth. infinite growth like that is what the stock market's all about right yeah. consistent infinite growth yeah. apple consistently makes more money every year they have to make more money at google every year right. you know every fucking company they have to make more money you can't chris ryan enterprises is <laughs> You have to constantly be in the black, Chris Ryan. I got bad news for my shareholders. <laughs> <laughs> we peaked. We decided to convert our dollars to whatever the fuck they have in Spain. What's the Spain money? Oh, they're in euros now. It used to be pesetas. So what do you do when you go over there? I, you, I sit back, back and let my fucking wife work. <laughs> I, I married a doctor, dude. I thought, I, I married a doctor. I'm like, I am set. I am set for life. And, and that's and, how you were thinking when you <laughs> married her? <laughs> well, you know, a little bit. Well, you love her, obviously. Of but, course I but love her. But there's also that added benefit, the fact that she's in a good business. <laughs> well, I've, I mean, the thing is, doctors in Europe don't make the kind of money doctors make in the U.S., right? But nor do they, you know, go out, come out of college with 200 grand in debt. Right. right? So, and but uh, malpractice uh, insurance, is that all is no, a burden? No. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is so amped up in the U.S. A, mm -hmm. a good doctor, like, you know, normal sort of, she's a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist in Spain, you know, good experience, whatever, might make 70 grand a year, something like that. You know, like a decent, stable, you know, good benefits. So everyone in Spain, everyone in Europe gets at least a month off every year. That's a, cool. Paid a month off. If you you work in a shop, you get a month off. You whatever. But they have the full thirty days off, or do they get like a week here? Full a week thirty there? days. Use it when you want. Thirty days in a row. You can Most do if you, want. you can do if you want. Most people take August, the month of August. Like nothing is happening. And Barcelona is empty. Really. In the month of August, yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, but you know, like the the thing about Spain that I love is that life is about pleasure. I mean, if we had to really boil it down, there is no shame in pleasure. And in America, pleasure is shameful. Why do you think that is? is I, why we I so... think it goes back to the Puritans, mm -hmm. you know, the original sort of influence of the Puritans, and that it got amped up, you know, like we're talking about the war on drugs, and we're talking about the Cobra effect, you know, these unintended consequences. If you look, it served political ends to keep attacking outsiders who did have pleasure black people mm -hmm. indians 
uh, Mexicans, you know, they're coming back again into fashion as the victims, you know. Yeah. Attack these brown-skinned uh, pleasure seekers, pleasure, you know, hedonists, because mm. they're they're evil. They're you know that's all evil shit. But they're dancing. Nobody buys that shit in Europe. It's footloose, in Spain, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Footloose. They, this is how dumb we are in America. We made Footloose again. <laughs> they tried to remake Footloose as fucks. That's interesting, yeah. though. It's it's also, when you look at it, America is so overwhelmingly infatuated with productivity. Yeah. You know, I mean, pr being productive and getting... Efficiency. Yes, efficiency. Yeah. And, you know, look at our workforce. You know, we have uh, work. Like, there's a goddamn commercial. I think it's for like Shell. I think it's I think it's a Shell commercial, and there's a an old man, and it's the weirdest fucking commercial, and it's it, it it's talking about how hard this guy works, and this guy he's a farmer, and he's like standing like a field of wheat, and he's like, you work hard not because you have to, but because it's what you do, and the guy <laughs> smiles, and I'm like, what the fuck are you saying? Yeah. It's almost like you're trying to trick people into working hard so they can tell people. There it is, right Almost. There. This is the guy. Can we play this? Let's let's play this because it's just go full screen because it's so fucking bizarre. This is one of the weirdest commercials, man. I I always weird out because they air this commercial during hunting shows. Not because you have to. Not because some boss told you to. But because that's what you were born to do. Now watch this. They get close and on this guy. That deserves the best we can do. And he smiles. It's what you're born to do. Thank you. Thank you for working hard from the number one heavy-duty engine oil in America. What the fuck kind of a commercial is that? It's what you were born to do? Now, here's what kills me. The person who wrote those words doesn't work for Shell. He works for an advertising agency that they hired to do that. Yeah. That old man, he's a fucking actor. Yes. Uh Nobody who works for Shell really had anything to do with that. Yeah. You know, so the, the classic commercial, we here at uh, Chevron, we believe that blah, blah, blah. And then you see all the people with clipboards and hard hats of various racial backgrounds. None of those people work for fucking Chevron. None of them. <laughs> the guy who wrote the words doesn't work. The guy who's reading the words doesn't work. There is no, Chevron is like a, is an entity that's, th there is no, they're there. You right. Know? It's it, just a collection of people designed to collect money. And it's not even the people who matter because the, all those people could quit tomorrow and Chevron would still exist. They just hire more people. Yeah. So Chevron's like the whirlpool and the people are the water. Oh. You know? That's, so that's part of this whole thing I'm writing. But, you know, wow. did you see that commercial? Speaking of irritating American commercials, there was one, I think it was on the Super Bowl even, where there's like a dude walking through the house and he's like, why do I have the best? I have the best because that's what I am and that's what I do. And he like high fives his kid. It was a Cadillac commercial. Do you remember that? It was no, so it. irritating. I haven't seen it. Oh, it was so fucking annoying. <laughs> Why do I have the best? Because that's what I am. Because that's who I am. We're, we work harder. We play harder. We, you know, like, and it's about you, America? bro. It's, yeah. <laughs> bro? <laughs> what happened to bro? Bro used to be cool. Oh, you know that guy was, was in a frat. I know, but, you know? Bro, but calling someone bro used to be, what's up, bro? It used to be okay. Yeah. It used to be like a black thing, in fact. It yeah. started out, and white people ruined it. Like, white dorky, young, boys. white guys ruined bro. Yeah. What's up, bro? 
Like, that used to be okay. <laughs> bro would be like, he called me bro. I'm a brother. It's short for brother. Yeah. But now bro is like a, the douchiest thing someone could call you. He's a bro. <laughs> or one of the things that people love to throw yeah. around is, especially in the fitness industry, is bro science. Uh-huh. It's like when, like, there's a lot of, like, really wacky ideas when it comes to athletics. And uh, some some people, they, they have these ideas that don't necessarily have any scientific background to them. And they call it bro science. Yeah. Yeah, he's full of bro science. Bromance. Yeah, bromance. But bromance is, you know, you, you love a guy. Yeah. Like, that's like, oh, that guy's awesome. I got a bromance for that guy. And there's, that's like, not a, isn't quite there, as there's douchey. like this, someone was teaching me the... What is it? The handshake, shoulder, one arm. Mm, there uh, is a definite th- there's thing a there. Thing yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. There's like a grip, like a fucking manly thumb up grip. And then the the one thing. And if you're really douchey, give a couple slaps on the back. The, the, yeah, there's a word for that, too. That's like, I'm not gay slap. I've but... seen people slap each other pretty goddamn hard doing that. Like, yeah. That doesn't feel good. Here's another thing I love about Spain. <laughs> You kiss girls always on the mouth when you no when on the cheeks when you right meet in the pussy. When, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you meet a woman, you kiss, kiss. Oh, uh, okay. Then I come to America, and it's like, hi, how are you? Right. You know, like keep four feet away from mm-hmm. me. You might be a rapist. You're eye raping them already. <laughs> what are you doing? Looking at them? You fucking creep. You're over fifty. You're over fifty looking well, at a yeah, woman. You piece of shit. I know, I what the know. fuck is wrong with you? Don't you have grandchildren or something to go wait on? <laughs> hey, what do you think about about Donald Trump talking about how hot his daughter is? Did he say that? He did. Oh, you didn't hear about no. this. So that this became Ooh. a big problem because he said. Uh, he said, you know, uh, Ivanka, my daughter, she's one of the hottest, you know, most beautiful women alive. Yeah? And he said, I'll tell you what, if I were 30 years younger and not her dad. Whoa, <laughs> what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> Jesus Christ. I, mean, I wonder if he's jerked off to his daughter. <laughs> just saying, look, this uh, is just thought. No one's getting hurt here. Yeah. It's me alone with my ideas. <laughs> I made her. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. That's I, a weird thing to say. It is a weird thing to say, but I think it's better to say it than to think it and give it power. Right. Right? I think saying shit, and this, again, you know, back to the whole Spain-U.S. thing. Uh, in America, there is uh, thought crime. Mm. And in Spain, I, I don't think, you know, maybe I'm romanticizing Spain. I lived there a long time. But another thing I really like about living in Spain is that I I speak the language well enough to, like, if I'm paying attention, I know what everyone's saying. But if I'm not paying attention, it all just becomes in the background. Oh, nice. Like jazz. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it gets sort of a certain it kind of jazz. Elevator yeah. music. Yeah. Yeah. When I was in high school, there was uh, someone wrote uh, a paper for the, the an article for the local school paper, and um, yeah, I don't remember most things from high school so long ago, but I remember this one article that this kid wrote about what they make you do in the Boy Scouts, and it was about the tenets of the Boy Scouts, whatever they were, but one of them was about keeping your thoughts pure. Oh, yeah. And he wrote something that was really cool. It was, you know, obviously a really smart kid. I wish I remember who it was. But he wrote, well, why do I have to keep my thoughts pure? He goes, one of the things that I like about my thoughts is that they're mine. Mm. I can think whatever I want. As long as I don't do anything that harms anybody, why do you care what my thoughts are? 
And I remember reading that. I was like, wow, that's so right. Like, what What does that mean? Keep your thoughts pure. Guy's in jail now. Probably. Yeah. He might be. He might be just. George Carlin did a great thing on that, you know, in terms of Catholicism and how he said, like, this was like class clown way back, right? Yeah. But I remember I was a little kid. My dad got that record. And I remember the one of the bits in there was like, you know, in Catholicism, if you think about sinning, you've already sinned. Yeah. So you're thinking about feeling up Sally at the weekend. Save your time. You're you're already you sin. It's done, right? Impure thoughts. Yeah, impure thoughts. That's straight out of Christianity. <clears throat> well, also the confession. Confessional is one of the most bizarre and ridiculous Put ideas. Put your balls on the table. Any re religion yeah. is it? And it was invented to make sure that people weren't doing anything wrong. I mean, the, the the priest would immediately report to any higher ups of any <laughs> illegal activity or yeah. stealing or you know adultery or fornication or whatever the fuck it would be. But you ever idea, read about the crazy shit where people were fucking animals in the Middle Ages and they would have trials, and sometimes the animals would be executed for being overly seductive. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Now that you brought this up, I ha I read something recently about this. God, I can't remember what the story was, but it was the, the animal trials. It was about yeah. animal trials. It might have been. Like did Southern you tweet France. that or anything? Could be. I don't know. I, I have a friend who just wrote a, a book, The Boundaries of Desire. Uh, he's a historian who focuses on um, sexuality. And uh, his first book was Sex and Punishment. And it was sort of like from the origins of civilization to the end of the 19th century, and then boundaries of desires the 20th century. So he writes about all this crazy legal shit, and you know, like the Comstock laws that made it illegal to, to um, in early 20th century America to uh, to even teach sex education to women. Like you couldn't even teach women how they get pregnant. That was illegal because <laughs> of this crazy fuck. Wow. I've always wondered what it is about people that makes them like it's oftentimes like some of the earliest imprinting with pleasure that makes people attracted to certain things. That's where like fetishes come from. Mm. And I've always wondered like like some people are like just overly attracted to extremely overweight women, like for whatever reason that just locks into them. That's their thing. And I've always wondered like. What is it about sexuality that like sexuality is like malleable? Like you can kind of, it kind of adjusts to like what your earliest impressions of. Like I've heard stories of guys who uh, caught their mom putting on pantyhose once when they were like really young and then for the rest of their life became like fascinated with a fetish of women wearing pantyhose and like they want to jerk off on pantyhose and have pantyhose yeah. rubbed on their dicks and it becomes this weird sort of a sexual imprinting thing. Right. Yeah, one of the interesting differences between male and female sexual development is that women don't seem to have that. Women mm. appear, it's, it's called uh, erotic plasticity. Women are plastic throughout their lives, so it's easier for them to adapt to different situations. Now, sometimes that works against them, right, because they fall in love with an asshole, an abusive asshole or whatever. But um, men have a developmental window, generally from like five to nine years of age, somewhere in there. And it's exactly as you described it. If there's a particular experience that they have during that time, it can resonate with them for the rest of their lives. And once that window closes, that's it. It's done. So 
you know, as you say, it could be pantyhose, it could be red high heels, it could be, you know, whatever it is, they've got that association and they can never not have it. They'll have it for the rest of their lives. Some people argue that pedophilia um, is a result of the same sort of thing. And I've argued, not in writing, but I've, I've mentioned it on the podcast, I think that there's a form, a manifestation of homosexuality, of what we call homosexuality, which is really a fetish, um, is more, is better described as a fetish experienced by a straight man. And to, all right, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Let's say you, you're born straight. There's, there's definitely a genetic component to sexual orientation, right? It's getting back to where we started, like how much is genetic, how much is mm -hmm. exper experiential. So just as a seven-year-old boy can have an experience with, you know, seeing someone with pantyhose or, you know, uh, whatever he's under the table and his mom's friend comes and she's got red high-heeled shoes and he's got a heart on and mm -hmm. so he associates the two what if that seven-year-old boy has an experience with another boy or with an, a man or an adolescent or whatever right so he this uh, guy sucks his dick or whatever it is and so he's got this very deep association between have you know having a man sucking his dick and this incredible pleasure even though he's straight, he's got that association. So for the rest of his life, he could have that association in the same way that another boy has the association with pantyhose or high-heeled shoes or whatever. It's a fetish. It's not his orientation. So mm. then what you've got is a straight guy who has a fetish for getting a blowjob from a man. So every once in a while he goes down to the truck stop and, you know, has this experience. He gets caught. Everyone says, oh, you're a closeted gay man. And he's thinking, I don't think I am, <laughs> but I don't know what the fuck I am. All I know right. is I love my wife. I have sex with my wife. I, I, yeah. I'm not, I could never fall in love with a man. I never think about having a relationship with a man. But, man, I love it when this guy with a mustache sucks my dick. So... I, I've never really wanted to write about this. And the reason is that I think it could play into the hands of the Christians mm. who are arguing that you can pray the gay away. Yeah. You see what I mean? Right. Because in a case like that, I think there could be a therapeutic um, uh, solution. So, well, I don't know, a solution or, or just a, a therapeutic uh, treatment <clears throat> that could have some value. Um, but. I mean, in my case, I would never say that there's a sickness there. I would just say it's a fetish. Like some people are into latex. You're into that, you know? It totally makes sense. I mean, it's uh, there are weird things that people get sort of bonded to, yeah. that their sexuality gets bonded to. Always and, men. Yeah. Almost never women. You'll never find a woman who can't come, you know, if she's not sniffing latex. <laughs> <laughs> it's something about rubber. Yeah. I have a friend who's a dominatrix. I, or not, she's more than a dominatrix. She's a humiliatrix. 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 So Take she, it to the next level. She specializes in dudes who get off on being humiliated. And I had her on the podcast. Uh, she's, she's really smart, really interesting, and it's not her thing. She just stumbled into this. So it's just a business for her. It's a business. She's like Shell Oil of <laughs> dick slapping. We here at Humiliatrix. Uh, we suck dick not because we want to, <laughs> but because we're But she never to do. meets the dudes. So it's all internet. One, oh. of, one of the best things about it is she's got phone lines. 
dedicated <laughs> to guys who get off on being ignored. <laughs> <laughs> so the phone rings. She picks it up. Oh yeah. Okay, I'll be right back. Puts the phone down and goes about her day and that it's like is clocking hilarious. up. Yeah. Guys who get off on being ignored by a so pretty they girl. seek yeah. to be ignored by a professional ignore. She sells her socks, her panties, her old tennis shoes, her toenail clippings, her <laughs> hair, her salon. She the way she got into it was she was living in Japan and she was like 17 or something and she was uh corresponding with some guy online and like he was trying to pick her up and she wasn't into it but he was funny so she corresponded with him and at one point he said she said I gotta go take a piss and he said oh don't throw it away put it in a bottle I'll buy it from you and oh she's my like, god come on you're foolish and he's, he's like no seriously trust me I will I'll, I'll you know 200 bucks or whatever so she puts she pisses in a bottle and she sends it and there's 200 bucks shows up in her account. And she's like, huh, this is interesting. There must be more guys like this out there. So she starts, you know, investigating it. And she finds that the world is full of these dudes. <laughs> Seriously, check her out. Sierra it's, Lynch. It's like, a, oh, I'm going to write her name down. See, I want to get go, her on the Check podcast. out her site. She's beautiful. Where does she live? She lives in Portland. C, but she spells it C-E-A-R-A. Sierra Lynch. Um, and up. yeah, she's got guys, uh, she's been on, uh, she was on a show on, uh, HBO recently, yeah. a show that is some sex show. I was on it too. Um, she's been profiled. She's, you know, she's a public figure. That's hilarious. Duncan used to know a girl who would, uh, yeah, there she, she is. is. Ta-da. Duncan used to know a girl, humiliatrix extraordinaire. Congratulations, young lady. You found a, an excellent <laughs> niche. <laughs> or niche, as it were. Um, yeah. Duncan knew a girl who would uh, sell her socks, and uh, she would wear them for days at a time to get them, like, really stinky. Mm. And then she would sell them to dudes. And, you know, like a couple hundred bucks at a time. So, like, that was her thing. She would just be wearing socks all the time and then sending them to people. That's a good you know, gig. <laughs> I guess. I Getting guess. paid for doing what you're doing anyway, you know? I guess. I don't know. There's just something weird about the idea of being connected to these people that are so fucked up they want your stinky socks. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> although as, you know, as things go, I mean, getting back to fetishes, you know, it's a relatively harmless, harmless thing, you know? And the fact that now people can engage these things in a more or less open way. I yeah. mean, what worries me with her is she she was telling me, like, there are guys who really get off on being blackmailed. And <laughs> <laughs> so these guys would give her, like, all their bank account numbers and passwords, <laughs> and then they would send her photos of, like, you know, like me with a dildo up my ass. And now her job is to threaten to tell the wife uh, you know, I'm going to tell your wife if you don't like give me $500 and oh no, please don't tell my wife. And you got to go through this whole thing. <laughs> and I mean, that's kind of oh, crazy, you know, but and I, crazy. And I said to her like, you know, well, and she said like, I never, you know, I don't contact wives cause they haven't agreed to participate in this. I'm not going to do that. Well, that's very ethical of her. Oh, she's, she has to be she's ethical. A professional. She's a pro. Uh, <laughs> But I said to her, well, like, what about the bank account? She's like, no, I would never, you know, I don't, I don't, that, that would be a crime, even if the guy gave it to me. I said, yeah, but what if your email gets hacked? And she's like, oh, 
hadn't thought of that. <laughs> yeah, some Russian kid hacks yeah, that right? email. Yeah. That's a lot of stuff there. Wow, that's an interesting thing. Well, maybe the, the guy has a separate humiliation bank account. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, I hope so. I, yeah, I, I mean, God, I mean, but the, to get the real rush, you'd have to give her your real bank account. Yeah. To get the real full, like, fuck, I could be ruining my life. I know another woman who specializes in kicking dudes in the balls. I've seen that. I've seen girls step on them. Ah. Like, step on guys' balls, like the high heel shoes, stomp on them. You could lose a ball like that, by the way. Yeah. Super easy. Yeah, that's, I would think so. Oh, God, that's so terrifying. I'm so boring. I mean, I spend time with all these, like, really kinky people, but, like, you I'm just like so sex. dull. Sex, sex. Basic, you know. Yeah. Well, you're not fucked up. That's what it is. <laughs> Sorry to tell not you. yet. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it goes back to what we're saying about people being sexually malleable. Like, what do you think that is? Is it because people couldn't have, like, a very rigid, or men, rather, couldn't have a rigid idea of what's sexually attractive because if they did, if their standards were too high, then they wouldn't reproduce. And so in the times of demanding, you know, where we're, like, uh, John Marco Allegro, uh, who is uh, one of the um, uh, lead scholars that was deciphering the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm -hmm. he wrote this book called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. And it was, yeah, I've read that. It, it's a great book. Yeah. And uh, it was bought up by the Catholic Church, actually. And uh, so you can only find it in, uh, it, it, for a while, you could only find it in um, used form. But now uh, Jan Irvin has uh, republished it. You can, you can get it again. Uh, and he wrote another one called uh, the Christian <sighs> Sacred Mushroom and the Christian Ma Sacred Mushroom and the Cross and uh, something uh, Dead Sea Scrolls and the Christian Myth, and it's essentially about uh, that what the it's his after studying the Dead Sea Scrolls for fourteen years it's his interpretation that what the what Christianity was really all about was the consumption of psychedelic mushrooms and fertility cults. And that fertility back then was extremely important. It was extremely important to breed because we, we didn't have this luxury that we have today of like people say, oh, is your girl on the pill? Man, I got her pregnant. Fuck, what do I do? Like people wanted to get people pregnant because the human population was not guaranteed. Like there was a very real possibility that you would come into a village that was empty because everybody died. They died of plague or they were invaded or whatever the fuck it was. Like they didn't have enough people and now there's no one and your name doesn't pass on. So that this was like a real possibility. So people is the idea of being sexually malle malleable that people can adapt to almost anything to become attracted to. Just make sure that they are attracted to something that they can come in something and make a person, whether it's overweight women or skinny women or this or that, that it can move around and that occasionally it gets imprinted, that this is like the thing that you're really into. And that in times of great excess, when people are slovenly and like like today, like you know, you, like this idea that you, you guy gets a, a fetish off being blackmailed. Like, what is that? That's a guy with too much fucking free time. I mean, clearly. <laughs> too much money, too. Yeah, too much money, too yeah. much free time. He's not starving to death. That's not a guy who's out there picking mushrooms, trying to find something edible to eat. Yeah. No, this is, this is a guy that's like sitting around trying to figure out a way to occupy his fucked up mind. Because, you know, it's too easy to just live. Like, he doesn't have real survival concerns. Yeah. Yeah, well, we've eroticized power, which, yeah. which ties into that. Um, uh, I've read that uh, one, th one source of uh, clientele for a lot of these sorts of women is Muslim dudes 
who want to be forced to eat pork. Whoa. They, they get an erotic charge from that. <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense, right. It totally yeah. makes sense. I mean, I often think, like, you know, getting back to, like, my boring sexuality, I, I think part of the reason that I'm not kinky is that I'm not repressed. Right. You know, and in a way, it's like it's like a steam engine. If you don't have that container and build up the pressure, you don't get that explosive release. So if you're just kind of like, yeah, whatever, you know, I get laid sometimes and I like women and yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, it's great, but it's, I, I mean, I wonder if healthy is less exciting than crazy. Well, but is crazy exciting to you though? Because crazy is not exciting to me. Like I don't find like the humili humiliatrix. I absolutely believe her. I believe that she has like a series of guys that want her to shit in their face or whatever oh, the yeah. hell it is. But to me, it's just silly. I don't get it. Yeah. Like you know, if but but are those guys having stronger orgasms than you and me? Mm, could be. But I mean, at what cost? Yeah, well, that's it. <laughs> yeah, they steal your bank account and shit in your face, <laughs> and you just come like a fucking wildcat. <laughs> wow, I'm broke. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe, but I mean, is that that fucking brief experience of coming? You know, I mean, how much? It would, all you have to do if you want to come really hard is just not come for a while. Right. I mean, you don't really need to have someone kick you in the balls or <laughs> shit in your hair. Like, there's, like <laughs> there's other things that you can do. All you have to do is just, like, go without. You know, yeah. like, water tastes amazing when you haven't had any water for a while. That's true. You know, when you yeah. haven't had water for a while, God, it's the greatest thing in the world. But when you have it all the time, it becomes normal, and you don't even want it. You want a Diet Coke. Yeah. But if you were starving or dying of thirst, rather, you, you would just love to get that water in your mouth. And I think that's kind of the same thing with sex. And that's where I think a lot of perverts fuck themselves over because they're just jacking off all day till they get blisters on their dick. And then they have to find a new way to hold their dick where it doesn't hurt as much. And you, when you do come, it's, you're chasing the dragon. Like, it doesn't feel good anymore. Mm. But if you could just take a few weeks off... You would be so horny that when you did come, it would, your ears would ring. You'd be like, "Whoa!" But you can't. Yeah. You can't hold off. And long if you enough. if you hold off long enough, then you get to the promised land, which What's the is promised land? wet dreams. Oh yeah, I can get those after three days. Seriously? Yeah, three Holy days shit. of no sex. Man, your testosterone levels must be through the I roof. Put it in there. Yeah, I make sure they're through the roof. I add it. Oh, I should probably try that now that I'm. It'll help. I'm, I'm a creep. Yeah, you, know, you once, are a creep. Once you reach creep age, what you need is tea. Well, people do. You know, that's a it's a, a like a source of shame for some people. They don't want to admit that. Like testosterone replacement therapy is like a shameful thing. Like people have asked me, and then I told them, I go, yeah, yeah, I take testosterone, and they go, like, what? And like, you just tell people, you're just admitting it? Like, my, look, it's it's a chemical component of your body. Mm. It's like, like if your body was lacking in blood, and right. you could just simply add blood to it, you feel better. Yeah. Wouldn't wouldn't you do that? Yeah. yeah. But for whatever reason, testosterone is associated with being a man. I also have uh, hypothyroidism. Mm. It's uh, it's called Hashimoto's disease. It's oh, yeah. um, it's uh, genetic. My mom has it, and other people in my family have it. 
So I take the stuff called Armor Thyroid that is, uh, it's formulated from uh, pig's thyroid. And it's great. It makes me feel way better. Uh, but I was having some real problems before I was taking it. I'd get these crazy headaches at night. Like my head was pounding. Or I thought, I thought it was something really wrong with me. Mm. And I would fall asleep. Like when I would fall asleep, it was like I got shot with a tranquilizer dart. Like, like at the end of the day, I was just so wiped out. I couldn't right. figure out what it was. And uh, so uh, while I was on Fear Factor, um, I had some real issue with it. Like my fucking he headaches would be crazy. I was be so tired at the end of the day. And then I got uh, my blood test done. But I would tell people that I take thyroid medication and nobody would bat an eye. Like, oh, you replace your thyroid hormone. Well, that's logical. Right. But you tell people that you replace your testosterone. And they're like, well, what the fuck are you doing? That? Do you have to? No, I definitely don't have to. If I take it, if I stop doing it, I will have less testosterone than I have now, but I won't feel as good. It's mm. that simple. Like it's, yeah. like, it's up to you to not abuse it, though. Because right. if you abuse it, like there are guys, like especially like some MMA fighters have like tested like these hyperhuman levels that are not even safe. Like they're really actually kind of dangerous right. because the idea is that more is better and just keep going harder and harder. But you really shouldn't do that because then you could develop anxiety. There's a lot of different things that happen when you do it. Like but, rage and stuff? Um, you can definitely get rage. You, um, you definitely get more upset at things more easily. But a lot of people, they develop actual anxiety. Mm. Like you, you have uh, anxiety attacks from having uh, an excess of testosterone. Mm. You start getting paranoid and you can get weirded out about things. It's just a matter of going to an ethical doctor that really understands what they're doing and then make sure you're you're not taking too much of it. You're doing it right and you just want to stay within like a healthy consistent standard and you'll just feel better. Your immune system will function better. But people don't like to talk about it because it, it, it like you have to admit that somehow or another you needed that. You have to admit that you're aging. Yeah. <laughs> you have to, right. You Which have is to, shameful again. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's amazing. The, and also, the and you're taking thing. it not to like, you know, combat a disease. You're taking it to feel better. Yeah. Which is pleasure. Right. Which is right. shameful. Shameful pleasure. Yeah. Dirty yeah. pleasure. Oh, you want to feel good all the time? Well, What's wrong with you? My issue with marijuana, too. You know, I tell people, like, people say, well, why do you need pot? It's not that I need it. I enjoy it. Yeah. I enjoy it, and it gives me more pleasure. It gives me more pleasure when I watch movies. It gives me more pleasure when I eat food. And it gives me way more pleasure when I have sex. Sex yeah. feels way better when you take marijuana. But that's an embarrassing thing to admit for some people, whatever, for whatever reason. I love how the word need comes in. Yeah, like, well, yeah. why do you need it, bro? Yeah, oh, I, I don't need weed to have fun. Who yeah. the fuck said anyone needed anything here? Yeah. You know, like, I don't even need toothpaste. Moralistic. If I bullshit. don't use toothpaste, my teeth will be less clean. But you know, I don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. a weird. We, we we're weird, man. We're weird, and also that we don't want it. We don't want to factor in our own mortality. We don't mm. want to address it. We don't know, want to admit it. So anything that you're doing to mitigate that is a weakness. Yeah. Anything you're doing to combat anti-aging is just vanity. You know, like well. I guarantee you I have more energy because of it. I guarantee, I know I do. I know I feel better. I can get done. I can get more things done, and my body works more efficiently, especially someone like me that enjoys doing things that are physically active, like martial arts and right. jujitsu. Like without the testosterone, without growth hormone and thyroid hormone and all these different hormones that are functioning at their optimum levels, your body's just not going to work as well. It's like having a race car that you don't take care of the spark plugs. You don't, you don't, you know, you don't replace the oil. You just let it drive it until that fucking engine seizes up and then you're done. That's nature. 
That's nature. Yeah. But if I mean that, but that's not nature because why are we getting vaccinated then? You know, why are we taking vitamins then? Why am I going to the doctor and getting checkups? Why don't I just let cancer eat my body? Yeah. Why get chemo? Why, you know, it's just natural. Like we have weird ideas of what yeah. you should, and they're, all those weird ideas are not based on critical thinking and objective analysis. They're just based on the standards that somehow or another someone else has, has set forth. Chevron. And, and we, <laughs> Shell, you were born to work hard because <laughs> you were farm. born to. You well, actor. I mean, you know, same thing with like these sex pills. Like now, the the, the female Viagra and stuff. It's, it's like it's bad. It's, it's bad bullshit. For you. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't work either because of what we're saying. No, because the, because of what we were talking about earlier, the plasticity that women women's sexuality isn't about blood flow, right? Right. Men, if you make your dick hard, you're horny. Because yeah. it, it, in, it engages nerve endings and, you know, like, well, oh, my dick's hard. I, I got to fuck something, you know? Well, even when guys get, like, a pee boner, like when guys, like, get, like if, if women don't <laughs> know this, boner. when men have to urinate and you wake up in the middle of the morning and your your dick is hard, it's not because you're horny a lot of the times. It's because you have to pee. It's morning wood. Yeah, and that's what morning wood is. But you can use that morning wood. Like you could use like any any regular old boner. Yeah. So when a guy wakes up and he has a boner, he just, oftentimes he's like, "Well, I don't want to waste that." You know, because it becomes. Like, I got a hammer that looks like a nail. <laughs> it becomes like this looks like a thing to use right here. Yeah. Excellent. Well, you you have uh, on average three erections per night if you sleep uh, eight hours. Really? So yeah. while you're sleeping, you're getting boners. Yeah, and that's one of the ways they test to see if your uh, impotence is psychological or physiological. They'll put like a little piece of paper tape uh, on your on your dick, and in the morning, if the tape is torn, it means you had an erection at night, so it means your body, your blood flow is fine. It's a head thing. Wow, yeah. how weird. You have to yeah. like, tie a ribbon around your dick to tie see if you a have an opening ceremony in the tree. middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> for the hostages <laughs> how yeah. strange yeah <clears throat> what a strange thing sex is weird i mean you, you asked a question earlier uh about the you know what's the purpose of the fetish generation you know module in the male brain and all that and i was thinking well two things um one in sex at dawn we talked about animals because this appears to be not only a human thing but common to male uh, mammals as well of other species um, there was one experiment where this guy I think it was in Scotland took all the he, he had a herd of uh, sheep and a herd of goats and one year he took all the babies and he put them with the other species so now all the baby goats are living with the sheep and all the baby sheep are living with the goats and he let them uh, live with that species till they reach sexual maturity at which point they were having sex with the so the goats are having sex with the sheep and the sheep are having sex with the goats Whoa. right then he takes them and puts them back with their own species <clears throat> okay and what happened was the females were like all right whatever and they were now so now the female sheep are having sex with the male sheep right they were switched back but the males refused the males who came you know who had been raised with the other species were like no i'm a goat fucker <laughs> Sorry, not wow. interested, because they had been imprinted. Wow. So the females just went with what was there. The males were like, no, no, th that's not me. Sorry. That's really interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. And the testosterone, we also talked about that. I remember there were some interviews with, um, 
a guy, there was one that was a guy who had a disease where his body suddenly stopped making testosterone. And he described, you know, eventually he was diagnosed and started taking uh, supplements, but he described it and he, and it was like all, it wasn't about sex. It was all pleasure stopped. Whoa. It was like, I didn't give a shit about music. I didn't give a shit about food. I didn't give a shit about relationships. I just was like blase about everything. And then there was another one where we quoted a, a someone who was going through a sex change from female to male. And she talked about like when she was a woman, she was a lesbian and she lived in Manhattan and she was talking about like, yeah, you know, I'd be on the subway and I'd see an attractive woman and I think, oh, I wonder what she's like and what kind of food she's into and what she's reading. And, and then when she was transitioning to male, she started taking testosterone. And she said, once I started taking testosterone, I'd be on the subway and I'd see the same kind of woman and I'd just be like, tits, ah, cunt, ass, cunt. <laughs> and she said, she said uh, I, it really gave me insight and compassion for adolescent boys. Chaz Bono said that. Oh, really? Yeah, she said yeah. that when, well, he said that when he transitioned from being female to male, yeah. that he understands it now. Yeah. That for the longest time, like he never understood men and it was just alien to him. And then once he started taking testosterone, he was like, oh, yeah. this is why guys are so fucking creepy. It's like they're just <laughs> overwhelmed by this demon inside yeah. of them that we call testosterone that you require in order to be happy and to enjoy anything in life. That's one of the things that yeah. happens to men with uh, traumatic brain injuries uh -huh. is the pituitary gland gets damaged, they stop producing testosterone, they get deeply depressed. And one of the best ways to mitigate that is supplementing them with testosterone. Like that cures a lot of the depression that a lot of these soldiers go through when they come back from yeah. the war. This traumatic, traumatic brain injury just disrupts the pituitary's uh, ability to function. You know, one of the we when you sort of typical situation you get a guy like my age right mid 50s been married a long time monogamous typical midlife crisis has sex with his secretary and then suddenly it's like holy shit you know i'm in love right mm -hmm. why does he think he's in love because food tastes better the colors are brighter everything's more interesting why is that? Because his testosterone levels have gone up. One of the mm. only things you can do without supplements to increase testosterone is have sex with a new woman. Mm. Your body responds to you having sex with a new woman with a spike in testosterone production. So he's got this T, elevated T levels. He thinks he's in love. He's not in love. He's just fucking someone new for the first time in 20 years. Wow. So he divorces his wife because now he's in love with this woman who seems to have the keys to the fucking universe. That wears off in a couple of years. And now he's, you know, <laughs> even more fucked than he was before. Well, that's also the key to this whole midlife crisis thing where guys buy sports cars. You know, yeah, risk. sports. Well, also sports cars, like literally driving a sports car elevates your testosterone, especially when you're quote unquote peacocking. Especially like, if Jay Leno's driving hey, and you're in the passenger seat. That was, that was a good episode, Thanks, actually. That was cool. When you're driving around people, especially potential young mates, uh -huh. females that could see you, right. your testosterone rises when you're in this car. Right. And even talking and flirting with potential young girls that you may, you know, one day have sex with, just being around them raises your testosterone. Yeah. Just the possibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wonder, 
getting back to Sierra, I wonder if some of those guys who are buying her panties, <laughs> if they're not getting testosterone surges. Probably. They're getting, well, something's happening, right? There's getting some kind of dopamine, serotonin, yeah. some kind, sort of a rush. Yeah, definitely. Dirty panties. Oh. <laughs> hey, have you ever heard of fecal transplants? Yes. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, it sort of goes back to the, what we were talking about the earlier. The biological thing. Really yeah. interesting. Well, it's fascinating how many things it cures and how many people have, like, real 30,000 people issue. die from uh, C. difficile in, infestation every year. And with fecal transplant, 98% uh, recovery rate within hours. Nuts. It's crazy. Within hours. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the biological organism, the idea of the biological organism being an individual has been completely debunked. Like, yeah. And that's what probiotics are all about. Yeah. I'm a big fan of probiotics. I drink, where is it? I didn't bring any. Must have left it in my car. I drink uh, kombucha every day. I drink that shit like water. I drink two or three yeah. of them a day. Well, I'm a big fan. I mean, I spent a lot of my uh, younger years traveling, you know, in, in Central America and Asia and stuff. And... Uh, like, when I'm in America, I put on weight. Now, part of it's that, you know, the food, and I drink beer, probably more beer. The You know, here you get a beer, it's a pint. Mm -hmm. Spain, you get a beer, it's about half a pint. Really? Yeah, it's a caña. It's a, again, Spain, it's just a different vibe. Servings of everything are smaller. Hmm. Higher quality, like really good and tasty, but small. So... You and eat Europe more is slowly. all about grass-fed food too. Like oh yeah, you don't, you don't get that corn-fed. No steak. fucking Monsanto GMOs. You know that whole thing. They're they're kicked out of a lot of countries. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no. In pesticides, a friend of mine's in the wine importation business, and he distributes um, organic wines. And he said he was in I don't know if it was Spain or France, and he was like, you know, you guys should get organic certified. You know, we could charge more. And they're like. What are you talking about? Like, we would never put pesticides on our grapes, you know? Like, this, right. that's crazy. Like, we don't need to say it. Like, nobody would do that. You right. Know? So it's a, it's a very different culture. But I think that the because the cheeses and the things are alive there, right? Yes. You know, yeah. you can't import the ham even. You can't import Spanish. Uh, I guess now they've changed it. You can start. Um, but... Uh, yeah, food is alive. So the micro, uh, the microbiome is very different. Yeah, I go to India. I lose weight quickly. Part of it's because I have fucking dysentery. <laughs> Part of it's because you feel bad because everybody else is starving. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was an article yeah. recently about uh, gray market foods in New York City. And um, I forget it was something I read online, and uh, it might have been from Dig. See if you can find it on Dig. I think it is from Dig. That's where I get a lot of my. Um, interesting news stories but um they were talking about this one particular type of cheese that is very difficult to get and um it's it's cured with cheese mites like these these mites mm. and if the mites are of a certain number per cheese it becomes illegal to import into america like it's like very sketchy like how you do it but over in France or wherever the fuck they grow this cheese where it's really popular, it just gets fucking lousy with mites. <laughs> and that that's where you get the real flavor of this yeah. cheese. And it's like a nutty, sort of a sweet taste to this cheese. And a lot of it is attributed to the fact that, first of all, they don't use homogenized or pasteurized milk. They use raw milk when they make their right. cheese, which is the way they make the best cheese. It, yeah. it keeps the enzymes in it. And then they're not scared of all these funky organisms. Yeah, this is it. Gray market foods. If you scroll down, you'll see that cheese. It's a uh, sort of a, like a orange-looking weird fucking cheese. That's uh, it right there. It's oh, called I've had that. Yeah. 
that stuff. And if you uh, make that a little larger so we can read it, <clears throat> it's uh, it looks really weird. But this guy was talking about how like, good it tasted. Yeah. See, it's uh, the unique way they alter the aging process, the presence of mites. FDA singled this cheese out as a potential public uh, health hazard. How do you say it? Mimolette. Mimolette. Mimolette yeah. has been banned and made illegal for sale in the U.S. and indignant, indignant consumers staged protests. Yeah, it looks cool. I'd like to try a piece of that. Oh, I've definitely had that, yeah. So one of the things we did on Fear Factor to make things more disgusting was we used really expensive cheese. We mixed really expensive cheese in with some of the stuff to give it this horrible fucking rotting smell. <laughs> and there's a, a yeah. expensive cheese. What do they call a cheese place? There's uh, a name for one of those places. Yeah. I don't know what it's called. But they had a cheese place in Beverly Hills. And so we used to send um, these people who work for Fear Factor to Beverly Hills to this super expensive cheese place and buy this really expensive hard-to-get cheese. And it stunk like death. And we would pour that onto whatever the fuck they had to eat, and it would make them more more repulsed. Do you ever have like French people on? No, and they'd be like, "Ooh la la." Well, Filipinos. I have I have a bunch of friends that are Filipino, and they would always be like, "Because we we serve people balut, and balut is a uh, a chicken or a duck embryo. Uh. It's like the full little embryos in there, and they'd eat the. And they were like, "That's we love that. Like, let get me yeah. on that show." You ever have Anthony Bourdain on the show? On this, yeah. Yeah, yeah really? Yeah, oh, that's cool. I'd, I'd love to meet him sometime. He's a great guy. Yeah. yeah. He's a he's an interesting character. He'll eat anything. Yeah, well, yeah. he's um he's gotten, like, super into jiu-jitsu to the point that's where right. he trains he, every day. With Henzo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every day, sometimes twice a day. Yeah, and his wife and his kid yeah. are doing it, too. Yeah. yeah, he's 58 years old. He started at 58. Now he's got he just earned his blue belt. Oh, he from, just started recently. Yeah, like within oh, a year ago. Oh, I thought year, this was maybe a long-term thing with no, him. No, no, it's really recent. Really? Because when I first you met him, like risking getting hurt when you start something like that old. Well, it depends on how you do it, and it depends on who you do it with. But absolutely, yeah. you know, you're. You mean if you have bad training partners, you can definitely get hurt. But you can definitely get hurt even with good training partners because yeah. weird shit happens. Yeah. You know, you roll over on an ankle, you blow some tendons out in your knee, you fuck up a disc in your back. It's all potential. Yeah. It's, it's definitely not. It's not fucking video games. You know, it's it's real life. It's, it's definitely dangerous, yeah. especially for a guy who's 58, who has no background of athleticism at all mm. and all of a sudden starts at a very advanced age and becomes completely obsessed with it that's cool yeah it is cool yeah his original show that no reservation show really uh got me into the idea of food as an art form because mm. i just thought of food as being oh that's good food's good this is good right. that place is good to eat at yeah. i didn't think of it as like oh this guy's making art that you taste yeah like when so when you eat a great meal like that experience, that central experience is that pleasurable experience is art. It's like yeah. someone's art is giving you pleasure through your taste buds. Yeah. It's through smells and you know, like when you have a really good meal, you smell it, you eat it. Like there's an art to that. Sure. I never really considered it that way until I watched his show. And again, that's a very European approach to food. Mm -hmm. You know, America food is fuel. Yeah. Shove that sandwich down your throat and get back to work. Yeah. Not in Spain, man. That's that or France or Italy. Yeah. I, mean, I have a buddy who's an athlete and he just he all he thinks about is food as fuel. He goes, I don't even care what it tastes like, I just eat it. He goes, I'm just yeah. I just want food as fuel and I'm like, What? Soylent 
You heard about that? Well, Soylent Green. Yeah, well, that movie. The, they named it after that. Oh, yeah. yeah, what is it? It's these guys in Silicon Valley who are coding, right? And they're like, well, I just want to work 24 hours. I don't want to stop and eat. It's a waste of time. And so they came out, they like developed this food source this gorp that you just like squeeze out of a tube and it's got everything you need and oh, wow. you know, they're all yeah Ugh. soylent is How that bizarre. it there it is okay yeah pour it? Mm. so it's yeah you just like that drink. can't be good for you though and look at that 29 bucks a month modular oh, soy protein oh that's gonna make you grow tits Exactly. Vitamins and minerals. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but what about? Yeah, it's just weird. Where's like, the pleasure? There's about, no pleasure. Yeah. That it's stuff's just, nasty. Yeah. It's one thing if you're a fucking astronaut, you got to survive in the space station with stuff you squirt in your mouth. But this is like you have the abundance of the Earth, and you choose to squirt paste in your mouth instead. Well, see, maybe this is part. Of, you know, this is this movement you were talking about, right? Because getting us to eat shit that doesn't take up space and we don't need clean air and we don't need healthy oceans you know that's to that's in the interest of the technology right mm -hmm. if 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 you see that that's where we're going if you think that that's where we're going then a lot of these things start to fall into place and make sense in a weird way hmm. i mean i read the other day that the tuna stocks in the pacific ocean are down like 40 percent in the last yeah. 20 years that's incredible. Did stuff. you ever see Jiro Dreams of Sushi? You know what? I've got it on. Someone uh, gave it to me. I haven't seen it. But... I resisted for a long time. People kept telling me how yeah. great it was. I'm like, whatever. It's a fucking guy making sushi. Who gives right. a shit? But it's great. Yeah. It's really great. And one of the things that they show in this uh, movie is when he was young, what, what it would be like going to the fish market in Japan. Mm. Just fucking stacks of tuna. And the tuna was so abundant. And then the overfishing has made a massive impact yeah. on, on the on the fish supplies. Yeah. And we've literally, I mean, look at how goddamn big the ocean is. The fact that we put a dent in it at all is just shocking. It's more than a dent, like we're collapsing. Three the quarters shit. of the fucking Earth's and surface that, that is plastic water. Plastic island, yeah. Yeah. size of Texas. Like, yeah. What the fuck? Man? I think it's even bigger than that. Really? Yeah. And this kid has developed. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it's. Um, it's an actual functional machine, but he's developed oh, some sort I of a device to clean up the like ocean. A skimmer kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and suck the plastic out. Well, you got to think plastic, once it becomes a valuable resource, if someone s figures out how to take it out of the ocean, if it was gold floating around out there, we would have a million ships that are fighting over this to try to get in. Like, if Russia and the United States found gold, gold particles circling around billions and trillions of dollars worth. Boy, they would, couldn't wait to plant a flag in the middle of the ocean to suck all this gold out of the water. Yeah. And because it's plastic, we're like, uh, I got plastic right here, dude. I don't yeah. need the ocean plastic. That's why you need the government, you know, because the government can create those artificial incentives. Pay for cobras. Yeah. Pay, uh, pay for plastic. I think that uh, that's the, the government being a solution. It's a, it's a beautiful idea, but it doesn't really work. Yeah, yeah. Well, It'd be nice if the government was completely altruistic and enlightened, and they well, were just on the see, ball. Well, see, here's the thing. Okay, going back to what we were talking about earlier, if we had direct voting and direct taxation, where you can say, like, okay, I'm paying my taxes this year. It's twenty grand. I want five grand to go to education, five grand to, you know, helping poor people, five grand to whatever, blah blah blah. Nothing to the military. If you could actually. Or at least have some some way of registering what people want their money to go toward, 
you know, you'd have a much more responsive representative government. If they had an educated decision-making process. Like, yeah. You really knew, like, well, what kind of a threat are we under? How much military do we really need? Because if we don't need any military at all, if there's no threat whatsoever, well, then that would be an appropriate way to respond. But right. what if they couldn't tell us how much threat there really was? And what if right. people had this uh, idealistic idea of how the rest of the world functions, but meanwhile there really is a need for the military? Yeah. I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle there. I, d I don't think that the world is this beautiful place that we need to not worry about at all and that we don't need any military. That just doesn't... I watch those ISIS videos on YouTube. I just... I'm not... I don't, they're, they're out there. They're there's pretty people, nasty. There's a yeah. lot of people out there that are fucking crazy. There's a lot of nutty fucking people that are killing people and would love to kill more. It's just always going to be that way. And I think that, like, what we're talking about, I think there's a there's a, a push and a pull in this life. And I think, like, you know, we were talking about tides coming in and tides going out, populations dropping and then increasing. I think there's a need for resistance in some ways. And I think that there's almost a need for bad things in order to inspire good things. Like we have to see the evil of something like ISIS or something, you know, fill in the blank, uh, Joseph Kony, the, 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 you know, the Congo dictators and evil warlords. We need to see things like, you know, Idi Amin. We need to see horrific things like Pol Pot. We need to, we need to be aware of that in order to almost promote the, the opposite of it. But what I would argue is that every one of those things that you mentioned is a response to something earlier mm -hmm. like Pol Pot is a response to the Vietnam War right. and the destruction of Cambodia by Nixon and Kissinger and mm -hmm. you know um, Kony is a response to the Congo having been exploited for ivory and then you know minerals between our phones and you know it's like Every one of these things arises out of a colonial exploitation. So, you know, we're saying, you know, Pol Pot's evil. Well, but Pol Pot is a response to evil mm -hmm. that we're not often recognizes as, as evil because it's coming from us, coming right. from our side. Mm -hmm. So I, I just feel like everybody who does something really nasty, they think they're doing good. You know what I mean? Like those guys in ISIS, they think they're good. Right. They're doing it for Allah. Yeah. Or they're doing it for, you know, in in revenge for mm -hmm. all the bombing or. Right. I mean, it's this process. So so I agree with you. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not an anarchist and I'm not uh, crazy. So I do feel like, you know, you've got to be ready to fight to defend yourself. But on the other hand, it I sort of agree with, you know, the Gandhis and the Martin Luther King and that whole line, civil disobedience, Thoreau's great essay. Mm -hmm. That like the only way to really end violence is to just not participate in it, mm. because the minute you participate in it, then it's this cycle. It's true. Yeah, and, it's and unavoidable. It never ends. Yeah, I mean that's sort of inarguable, really, right? But if you do not participate and your loved ones are slaughtered before your eyes, then what? Like, should you have acted to stop that from happening? And is a certain amount of violence? justified in order to promote a higher ethical and moral standard for the culture to eliminate people who don't abide by those things. But you would have to have very strict right. interpretations of this, and you'd have to have very strict rules of engagement. And we clearly don't have that. Yeah. And I wonder if we ever did. It feels like it was better. 
right? Yeah. Doesn't it? Like it talks talking about police in the U.S. Like yeah. before the war on drugs, it seems like cops were cool. They weren't the enemy. I thought that too, but when you talk to cops, like it seems like poverty and drugs and crime they're kind of always together you have right. desperate there's a great documentary that i'm watching right now called i think it's called the seven five um nick DePaulo told me about it he actually uh talked about it on ari shafir's uh podcast and then i went and got it um what is it called it's called uh yeah it's called the seven five and it's um it's all about this really corrupt precinct in um in new york city in uh the 19 i guess i think it's the 1970s mm. but it's fuck that's it right there it's fucking incredible it's, it's, it's so goddamn crazy this guy michael dowd who i don't know his history i need to after the documentary's over i'm going to uh google him and find out what his history was but he's hilarious and he's out now i guess cause he's wearing civilian clothes he's not a prisoner and he just he testified about all the corruption that he was involved in and you know all the shit that he was and then they they start reenacting it and talking about it in the documentary along with facts and the different people and different players involved and like whoa yeah. just completely out of control <laughs> just totally out of control crime and corruption yeah. and drugs and you know so this is pre-war on drugs this is 1970s and it just, I guess, kind of pre-war on drugs. But Nixon sort of instituted a war on drugs. And yeah. They really instituted a war on drugs uh, essentially when they uh, passed the sweeping psychedelic acts of 1970. where They made essentially everything psychoactive, illegal, all the different mushrooms and LSD. And yeah. Many people don't even know that. But prior to 1970, all that stuff was legal. You know, that was one yeah. of the big issues with uh, the tune-in, turn-out, you know, <coughs> Timothy Leary's ideas. Was that it was legal? You could well, actually, and, and, it, and it was effective. I mean, LSD. One of my favorite fun facts about LSD is that it was mostly used uh, initially by psychiatrists to get insights into what it was like to be psychotic. Whoa! It was called a psychotomimetic, and in other words, it mimes the effects of psychosis. So psychiatrists who dealt with psychotic people, as my wife does, would take LSD. To like, oh, this is what it must be like to be them. This wow. is what it's like to hear voices and to lose touch with reality and to have all this overwhelming input. And and then they would go back to their patients with a greater compassion and understanding because they were like, I get it. I know what you're you know what you're going through. That's fascinating. Which is what a shaman does, right? right. Like in shamanic practices, often it's the shaman who takes the drugs in order to change his or her consciousness to help you with whatever you're dealing with. I mean, that's such a beautiful sort of noble uh, approach to healing. I was uh, driving yesterday and I drove past a short bus. You know, those little buses where yeah. kids are troubled. And there was this little boy, uh, he looked like he was Indian. He looked like he was probably about nine or 10 years old. And uh, he was staring at his hands and he was like moving his hands around and nodding and going back and forth. He was like, at first I thought he was just playing. You know, I thought it was just a kid in a bus who was bored. And then um, as I was stuck there at the red light and I'm looking in this window and he was making noises and looking at his face and he was moving his mouth around and he was just staring at his fingers. And I was realizing like, oh, this kid's kind of fucked up. There's something wrong with him. And then I started thinking, I mean, I was only, it was only for, uh, you know, whatever it takes for a light to change. 
I was thinking, like, what, what, what is this guy seeing? Like, what is he seeing? He's obviously not seeing things that normal people see or experiencing it in the same way that a, a quote-unquote normal person would. But he was moving his fingers around and staring at it and bouncing back and forth. I'm like, what is this kid's trip? Like, what is this like for him? Is it, does he have some abnormal levels of neurochemicals? Like, what is causing him to have this experience? What error in his circuitry? Like, what is it? Mm, but it was, yeah. it, was, it was sad but fascinating at yeah. the same time. I mean, I don't know what he was suffering from, but it was clearly something. Well, my Casilda is um, she's really interesting. She she loves psychotics. That's her favorite population to work with, which, are, you know, psychotics are the people who have lost touch with reality. So that kid may have been having a psychotic break or, you know, who knows what his thing is. But I the first time I went into her office when I first met her, it was like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, right? You know, like the, the double doors, the locking doors, the grates over the windows, high security, people just like, you know, completely out of it. And she loves those people because she says they're honest. They're completely honest. And they don't lie. And when she meets them, and I've seen this happen in the street countless times at this point, she laughs. She just laughs. And they, because they know they're crazy. There's part of them that's observing. And they know they're acting ridiculous. And they're like shouting at, you know, something that they know isn't there. But they can't help it. So she laughs in this very friendly, open way. And and they, like, oh, like, you get it. There's They have this rapport. It's a really beautiful thing. I've never seen happen before. But it's almost like a shamanic kind of connection she has with people. But, you know, she, she sees kids like that, and she's just like, oh, I love those kids. I love wow. them. She's not afraid of them at all. She's afraid of normal people because we're all lying. <laughs> you know, and she's not good at – it's a weird thing as a psychiatrist. She's not good at seeing through bullshit. She, she smells it, but she, she just, like, flees from it. So she'd just rather have it where bullshit's not even an option. It's not she, even on the no, table. No, she wants honesty. And, wow. like, if that means you're drooling and pissing down your leg, that's fine. She doesn't care about that. Lucky for me. Boy, is she an outlier. <laughs> she is, she's, she's a bit of a nutcase herself. And, you know, in the best possible way. I mean, I often think, like, uh, someone who works in, you know, I'm a psychologist. I spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. Someone who works in mental health is like a lifeguard, you know. And 99% of us are the lifeguard who stands on the beach. And if you're in trouble, they'll, like, throw you up a ring and wish you luck mm -hmm. she dives in she goes right into the water which is really dangerous and, mm. and very rare um, and one of the reasons honestly she's been on a break for a few years because it was blowing her mind there for a while wow so it's good to be able to fuck off to america for a few yeah years. i would imagine the burden of that would be pretty intense when i was uh fucking my fucking off my way through college <laughs> i shouldn't say fucking my way through i didn't really do much fucking college unfortunately <laughs> but uh i i got i went to um umass boston and uh i t basically was wasting my time there i was only really going because i didn't want to be a loser i you know i'd go there because i would tell people oh i'm going to umass boston you know but wasting my time when i was trying to think of what would be a career that i would be interested in Psychology was the only thing that interested me because I thought, well, at the very least, at least I'll kind of understand how to manage my own mind. 
because uh, I obviously had a lot of troubles. There was a lot going on in there that I was trying to always wrestle with inside my head. And I felt like it's, if at least I do that, I will have a greater understanding of my own problems. But then I thought about it and I'd be like, but I will be dealing with other people's fucking problems all the time. And I just don't have the patience for that. I just, yeah. I admire people who do, but I'm not one of them. I just, I, I there's, I believe that that shit is contagious. And I think mm. that negative energy, b b laziness, slovenly behavior, all that stuff wears on you. Because I think we imitate our atmosphere far more than we want to admit. And yeah. we, we become in sync with our atmosphere far more than we care to admit. And if you're around a lot of really positive, really healthy people, you tend to gravitate towards positive, healthy behavior. But if you're around people that are constantly self-sabotaging, you'll you'll that becomes the standard, that becomes the norm. So your culture. It's yes, and it's not it's not good for you, and it's yeah. very very frustrating to me. And when I'm around people that are sabotaging themselves, I get angry. I get, "Will you just mm. fucking stop? Get your fucking shit together." It just I, I, which is not really a healthy way to approach them <laughs> because it doesn't work. You know, you can't yell at yeah. someone and say, "Get your shit together." But yeah. it's almost like impulsive because I know that it's creeping into my brain. Yeah. Like, "You're spitting on me, you fuck. You're sick. Yeah. You're sneezing with your mouth Cover open." Cover your mouth. Yeah. yeah. You're you're coughing in my face. Yeah. And that's what someone's doing when they're when they're they're sabotaging their life in front of you consistently and continually and they drag you into their world. Well, can help me like no you are a grown person help yourself god damn it and you get sucked into it you know like you, you okay i'm gonna call you i'll call you later then you have to call and check up on them and they're crying and like what the fuck you know it's like <laughs> like when people don't yeah. get their shit together it becomes contagious and i i worry about that when it comes to psychology i worry like like people that are constantly dealing with other people's disasters and fuck ups if that's your day it's just every day you're dealing with someone who can't stop eating cake or they can't stop jerking off or they can't stop whatever it is that they're hung up on, whatever craziness. I always feel like, man, in trying or even making an attempt to help those people, you're sort of giving up a lot of your sovereignty when it comes to yeah. your own established mental state. Yeah, which is why, you know, Casilda's got extremely firm boundaries. And when we're like, you know, if we're hanging out with someone, you know, potential friends or whatever, just people, whatever, if she detects something that's not right, she's just like, yeah, I'm going to go home and she's out like uh, she's not gonna because I think it's what you're describing. She feels like if this isn't a clinical situation where mm -hmm. I'm in charge then I fe she feels contaminated by yeah. it. Whereas I feel more like, yeah, whatever, you know, everybody's got their weird shit. But then I find myself developing friendships with people, and then a year or two down the road, it's like, fuck. You know, they, they weird out on me, and, like, I didn't see that coming, and she'll say, are you kidding? I saw that coming <laughs> the day you met that guy. Like, why would you, you know, I tried to warn you. Like, oh, well, there's it. some people that are undeniably toxic, and by toxic, it doesn't necessarily even mean that they're trying to harm you. Right. They might be toxic just by the fact that they're fucking so self-indulgent, and, and they're, they're, they're always... Like, there's a lot of people that constantly want to talk about their own problems. Like, their own problems take precedent over everything that's going on, and it's just this constant examination of their own faults. Yeah. And they never get better, those fucks. Those fuckers, they, they, they constantly repeat the same problems. And I think that a lot of them 
they have even addictions and that these addictions whether it's alcohol or drugs or whatever the fuck it is those addictions they have are almost like it's like facilitates this need to talk about themselves and their problems mm. they create more problems so they're constantly addressing their problems yeah i hear that and that's why she prefers psychotics because they're not doing that <laughs> it makes sense they're crazy they have to neurotics deal with are just shit. a pain in the ass yeah, yeah. but yeah. psychotics they can't help it they're just like that. They're born that way. Well, to wrap it all up, Chris Ryan, are we fucking doomed? <laughs> when is this book coming out, by the way? Probably next summer. Are you almost done with it? Or yeah. Is it the editorial process now? Like Not yet, but within, I'd say within a month, I'm going to, I'll turn it in and then flee the country. And then when you turn it in, does it, a bunch of fucking bean counters start going over your shit and des deciding which way it should go? Because you have to give up a little bit of creative controlled in order to have it published right is that how it works yeah i mean it depends where you are in that world you know i mean you know it's probably the same like with a comic right it's your first special mm -hmm. the producers are going to have a lot to say if someone like you you can walk in and say no i'm going to do it this way yeah. take it or leave it but even then like there were some bits that i like comedy central wouldn't put on my last special oh yeah yeah they're like you can't do that one that just one we can't put that one on the air i'm like yeah. all right yeah, There's although, a couple of them, actually. I mean, you could do, uh, you're in a position with your platform where you could just say, all right, Comedy Central, I'll, you know what, I'm going to pay, tape this myself in a small club in L.A. and then distribute it through my podcast and cut you guys out. You well, could do that. The, your, uh, the earlier regime, like the regime that they have now is really good, but they had an earlier regime, and several years ago I had a conversation with them over the phone. We were going over material, and in the middle of the conversation I went, stop, 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 we're done. We're not going to do this. Like they were saying, like, you've got to do this instead of that. You can't say that instead of this. And they were telling me as if, like, we're going to create some sitcom together. Right. You know, like, and as I go, this is like, no, you, th that part has to be in. Yeah. Because it's the whole point. The whole point about telling the story of Noah and the Ark to an eight-year-old retarded boy. You have to have an eight-year-old retarded boy. Because <laughs> so the eight-year-old retarded boy goes, well, there's a lot of holes in that story. And they, and they were like, you can't do that. I was like, well, that's it has to be done. Yeah. Like, you can't tell me what I can and can't do. Like That's the whole point. Right. Are you saying that eight-year-old retarded boys don't exist, or are they just you can't ever discuss them? Which one is it? Because I'm right. not making fun of the eight-year-old retarded boy. I'm saying the eight-year-old retarded boy is too smart to buy exactly. the story of Noah and the Ark. Right. And to them, it was just the vehicle was unacceptable. I go, well, we're done. We're done here. Like, well, like, well, why don't you have it like an older? No, you're saying this because you want to save your gig, and your gig is to like be able to somehow or another justify what you've put on the air to the advertisers or whoever the fuck is above you, and like that's you can't do that with comedy. Right. Like if you mono you homogenize comedy, you just develop you, unless it's your thing. Like some people, like that's how they think, which is fine. But, but they if, shouldn't be working in comedy. Then. Well, they could be. Like Jim Gaffigan, he's a hilarious guy, but his comedy is very like anybody could laugh at it. Hmm. Brian Regan is the same thing. He's hilarious, but that is him. Right. You know, there's always going to be pop music, and some pop music is really fucking good, and then there's always going to be just. A, dirty fucking nasty like music from the street which is also really good if that's yeah. what you're into you turned me on to doug stanhope talking about someone who just goes he's fantastic yeah he's free and he's doug the opposite of what you're free. talking about yeah, yeah he doesn't know you can't tell doug what to do 
just it's yeah. not it's never gonna happen he doesn't care he does all doug needs is enough money to get by and right. he's done you know i mean he lives in this weird fucking town bisbee arizona seven miles from the border of mexico it's this weird artist community he's got this strangely painted house he invites people over his house for super bowl party like literally the the internet he'll like put out a, a, his address and people just come to his house <laughs> he's had 500 people over his house for super bowl parties he didn't know 459 of them i mean he's that nuts that's his, a lot of bean dip his girlfriend completely out of her fucking mind like legitimately crazy on pills her name is bingo she sh <laughs> shaves her head the hair that's left she puts blue paint on it and they fucking go out of the house and she's wearing like socks on her arms she's oh, nuts and that's that's, that's his that's his reality I mean, he's he wears ironic suits and he gets upset because now like more people are wearing these ironic suits and he's afraid that he's going to get lumped into these categories of these people that are like trying to act as if they're ironic yeah. by wearing you know ridiculous suits he's a he's a he's a fucking national treasure he yeah. really is it's, yeah. it's so hard for someone to go that road so 100 percent committed that they come out on the other end of doug stanhope most of the time somewhere along the line they sell out yeah <laughs> you have to yeah yeah but i mean as far as the public publishing thing i'm because of the success of sex at dawn i'm think i'm in a position to sort of you know i've got leverage yeah and and the guy the editor who um who acquired the book is the guy who edited sex at dawn so oh, i know how great. he works oh that's different great. publisher he he quit and left he's with someone else so he's cool and he, we know we've known each other for years and that's nice when you develop a relationship like i've heard of authors that have relationships with their editors and it's really great yeah you know, i had a book deal for a while and uh it didn't go well it's the same thing as the comedy central thing i wrote some stuff and they were like well we want it to be like your stand-up we want you to write like i wrote stuff like that maxim piece yeah where it's not like stand-up it's just my thoughts on things and they were like we want it to be like a laugh every minute i'm like D -d 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 -d. we're done we're done. Yeah. So I gave them their money back. Yeah. I gave them their advance back. My friend Steve Rinello is a writer. Is like, do you understand that that's like every writer's dream to, to give, give the advance. money back and tell them to go fuck off? Well, but see, I, I wouldn't give the money back and tell them to go fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> I think what I'm going to do is eventually decide to sit down and finish it and just release it online. I think that might be the best way to do it. Release it as a, 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 a audio, not an audio book, but a PDF or release it as uh, a, an ebook. Uh, an ebook, yeah. Or, or you know maybe find a publisher that just leaves well you know what i'm home. doing i'm i'm uh and i might be getting a little ahead of myself here but i've been talking to a company uh called misfit very cool guys interesting story they're based in fargo uh sort of like bisbee <laughs> one of the uh, the guy was he quit his job he was working on wall street um jd or i can't remember what his name is but he was working on wall street making a bunch of money late 20s get gonna marry his high school sweetheart and um, they're going to go to the Bahamas or something on their honeymoon. And he goes in, and he's talking to his boss, and his boss says, oh, listen, by the way, um, sorry, congratulations on the wedding this weekend, but you got to be in here Monday because we got this, some deals coming up. And he's like, my, uh, my honeymoon. He's like, yeah, no, sorry. You know, you're, it's Wall Street. You're working for the big boys now. Oh, and uh, we're going to give you a bonus you know, bump up your annual salary now to 250 instead of whatever, 180 or whatever it was, right? And so he goes back to his office and he's like, I just got a $75,000 raise. Uh, I'm making a quarter of a million dollars. I'm 28 years old and I can't go to the Bahamas on my honeymoon. Fuck this. 
Oh. And he says, I got to quit. And uh, it was December 29th. And if he had stayed till the end of the year, he would have had a, his end of year bonus, which was like 50 grand or something. But he said, if I stay two more days, I won't do it. You know, it's that moment you're on the edge, you're either going to wow. jump or you're not. And he went in, he said, sorry, I'm out. Quit, quit his job, right? Ballsy dude. Ballsy dude. Had no money saved because he was, Jesus. you know, living the high life and uh, was actually in debt. And he and so they couldn't go to the Bahamas. They got married, and he and his sweetheart got on the train and just went across America on Amtrak. And the train uh, stopped in Fargo, and he was like, "I love that movie. Let's let's get off and check this place out." And they ended up spending a few weeks there and fell in love with it. Wow! And he, Fargo, North Dakota. Fargo, and he said it's a really cool town, and there are all these great artists there, and really creative people, and it's this because there's nothing for hundreds of miles. Right. So like all the interesting people like are in Fargo, and uh, he said it's this great town. So they they opened this business where they sort of uh, do like um, branding for cool companies, so they only work with who they want to work with. And anyway, so I'm talking to them about putting together a book of excerpts of some of the best episodes of my podcast. Oh, that's a great idea. For people who don't listen to podcasts and for people who do listen to podcasts to give as a gift, right? To their dad oh. or their whatever, girlfriend or whatever. And you, I mean, you guys could put together a fucking encyclopedia. But anyway, I mean, like, why not? You've got all these great interviews mm -hmm. with really interesting people. You know, why not make an ebook or a, or a physical book or whatever, you know? And, and it's not a bad idea if people are into reading it instead of listening to it. I mean, why not? And, and yeah. you know, and there's some forms, some places where listening to it's not appropriate or not not an option. On the toilet? Yeah. I, I just think there's, there's so many different ways to get information now. It's such a cool time. Yeah. I just, I'm, I'm so between podcasting and blogging and people creating little internet videos of their own and, and these. Is YouTube content people like I had this guy Lewis on yesterday from Unbox Therapy, and he like reviews technological things, unboxes them. He's very educated on them, and mm. it really explains the ins and the outs, and he really um, educates your 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 buying options because he gives you a lot of information that's pretty unique. But these guys like there was no option like that before. There was no like in depth consumer yeah. reports that completely uncensored without commercials for 10 15 whatever minutes he chooses to upload the video completely up to him the same thing as we were talking about the impact the internet has what an amazing thing it is because there's never been something like a podcast like this it's gonna this podcast is gonna reach a million people and it's gonna i mean this this one is gonna get downloaded by a million people plus and over the course of X amount of years, right. who knows how many million it'll be because it's always up, available, it's always free. Anybody can download it and it's available in a bunch of different forms. So you can get it from YouTube, you can get it from Vimeo, you can get yeah. it from Ustream, you can get it from tw uh, Stitcher, you can get it from iTunes, you get it as an MP3. It's just available on all these different, so it just keeps, and you could say whatever you want and no one's gonna stop you. Yeah. And that, that never existed before. There's never been something like that before. That's why I hope we're not fucked. I don't know if we're fucked, but I know that this thing that we have right now is fucked. Like this setup, you know, the mm. the Congress yeah, and the Senate yeah. and the fucking lobbyists and the president right. and the, def, you know, the corporations, of Defense, corporations. You know, yeah. I mean, the tr the movement has been. You think about the focus of power, right? It's been from uh, hunter gatherers, dispersed egalitarian hunter gatherers, 
Then you got despots that came, you know, gathered the power in agricultural societies. Then the despots get together and form institutions, primarily the church first. Then you've got um, political uh, institutions. Then you've got corporate instit- economic institutions. What's next? There's got to be a next. Yeah. So I'm hoping that the next will be a return to the dispersed power because of what we're talking about, because now we've got direct connections to everyone. Yeah, it seems entirely possible. And it seems at least if it's not the only option, it'll be an option. It'll be like there will, there will be a, a corporations that are set up that are more ethical, more connected to people, and more grounded in their approach to trying to acquire money. Yeah. As opposed to like what we've got now, the infinite growth paradigm, which is kind of out of control. It's just you can't have it's, it's not sustainable. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But yet it's the norm. Yeah. Like this non-sustainable idea is the one that everybody pursues as opposed to, hey, everybody, isn't a billion dollars enough a year? We're good, right? We're good right here. Let's just, you know, I mean, it's it just seems like th- these kind of discussions and discussions like this, whether it's on uh, social media or what have you, and the, the, just people's ability to Google and actually get the raw data and kind of, it educates understanding and, and, and it, it just changes the way we view it. Instead of viewing it as, you know, this is how it is and that's how you do and you don't work hard because you have to, you do it because that's what you were born to do. And then this actor smiles, who, by the way, is not fucking working hard. He's an actor that doesn't even talk. Right. I mean, bizarre, <laughs> bizarre and ironic. I mean, yeah. I mean what yeah. an easy job. Yeah. When we come in and close, Mike, when we get right here, yeah. I want you to smile, but not a not a happy smile. Like I'm a rugged fucking a hard fun. man with yeah. calloused hands. Yeah. Smile. Wearing overalls. I mean, I think we're we're seeing the bullshit better than we've ever seen it before. Yeah. And that's at least step one. That is my hope right there. Look at you. You're becoming I'm, an optimist. I'm becoming. It's like I have grandkids or something. <laughs> Not that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's wrap it up. Uh, you still doing tangentially speaking? Every week. Every week. You get it on iTunes. Everywhere you get your finer podcasts. Website. ChrisRyanPhD.com. ChrisRyanPhD on Twitter. Yep. That's it. That's it. All right. Thanks, brother. It's been hey, a pleasure. As yeah, always. As always. always fun. Thank you. Bye, everybody. See you next week. Mwah. Big oh, kiss. Wow. It's like laughing. <laughs>